Before you run out of the stone on this podcast, you should know that it contains a few rude big job words and discussion of a few headlands you might not want to talk to your wee big hags and lads about yet. Check the show notes for details. I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratt Chat, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. This month we're reading A Hat Full of Sky, and normally I make a joke about the title, but this month you can all just mind your own beeswax. (laughs) And our guest is writer and poet Sally Evans. Welcome, Sally. Hi, guys. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure. I feel like you've kind of been on the podcast in spirit because you and I have talked about Terry Pratchett well, many times. certainly. I'm like the guardian angel. The no, undergeist of the but, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> uh, where do we get one of those? Because I'd love one from my mm, house. Oh, oh God. How do you, maybe you can summon one. I don't know. How do you get a poltergeist? You just do the opposite of that. I think it would run away from my house in disgust. <laughs> Or would it, like, Run you know, glom it. towards oh, it? A thrill. Yeah. I mean, I think it would have a great time on my desk. Ha. Yeah. I mean, I would never find anything. It would be all supremely organised. But, you know, it's, it doesn't matter how organised something is. If you don't organise it yourself, it's mm, a disaster. That is true. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Sally, you've been a Pratchett fan for ages. I have, yeah. I know you like to get the backstory how your guests got into Pratchett to begin with. Um, and I think it's probably not an unusual story in that he was recommended to me by my dad. Um, <laughs> lots of dad recommendations, I think, for Terry Pratchett. But yeah, I was working it out. So I know, I guess as a young teen, um, you know, going into high school kind of age, I was into fantasy books. I was a bit into sci-fi. I'd read Douglas Adams, like I think coming out of Hitchhiker's you know, more serious fantasy and sci-fi as well, but sci-fi comedy. So Douglas Adams and I loved, loved Red Dwarf and I'd read, I think, the Red Dwarf novels at that point. Maybe even some Ben Elton, but maybe that came later. Um, Mm. But anyway, yeah, I'd read The Hobbit, had tried to read Lord of the Rings, but, you know, I think at age 13 it was just too dense Mm. for me. Um, and I still haven't read the Lord of the Rings books. Um, but yeah, so my dad recommended, you know, like, see if you can find Terry Pratchett books at the library. And so my high school library had a paperback of The Last Continent, oh. I think, and a hardback oh. of Jingo. <laughs> um, so I know it must have been just after Jingo had come out. So I reckon it was probably 98, 99 mm-hmm. that I started reading Terry Pratchett and Probably both weird places to start, but, you know, high school library in the middle of nowhere, there wasn't an abundance of options. 
Mm. Um, so yeah, I um, read both of those and I did really love them. Rincewind as well. Mm. Um, yeah. And yeah, so then kind of went back and started with Color of Magic, like just went straight back and did it as chronologically as possible. And you know, it was kind of a, if I had birthday money or Christmas money, I'd like get the bookshop in the little town I grew up in to order the next one that I needed. So I've got all the like little paperback copies that I got for $14 or whatever it was, mm. like ordering them and then eight weeks later get a phone call that you know the books come in and it's like I can devour the next one and it's always been the Discworld ones specifically so I haven't really ventured into many of the other Terry Pratchett books so the Truckers and that kind of thing I've never really done but Discworld and then gotten into the Tiffany books obviously as an adult um Mm. which is interesting as well but yeah that's my story well they they started coming out once we were all adults yeah Yeah, Uh, I think it would be very interesting to be a young girl in particular, but a young person reading these books, you know, synchronously, like as a teenager and seeing Tiffany kind of age up with you. mm. Like I sort of wish that was my, like something I could experience rather than having to come at them as an adult. Um, And particularly I think like We Free Men and Hatful of Sky, like they're still a little bit to children's books slash young adulty for me. So for me, it's probably Winter Smith and onwards where they really grab me, which is not to say that there's not great things about them. But mm. it's like, yeah, I think coming at it as a young person or coming at it as a parent with a young person that you're reading them with, I think would be a very interesting and a different experience too. Yeah, I had that feeling when reading this book and also the previous one, like, how would I felt as an 11-year-old reading this? Because, like, growing up, I had, you know, Harry Potter, who was, like, sort of the same age as me all the way through, and also, like, all the Enid Blyton school books. Mm. So I'm like, mm, okay, so I could have had Tiffany yeah. in her frying pan, or I could be like, well, me and the other girls can send this uppity little girl to, to Coventry because she thought um she needed to be taken down a few pegs or two. So, like, mm. I was like, mm. Yeah. So I wonder what what that done to my psychology. <laughs> I think Tiffany's a um, more rounded female role model than maybe some of us might have had. Yeah, you know, not to disparage my Babysitters Club and Nancy Drew kind of <laughs> yeah. role models, but yeah, I, it's weird. Cause I don't remember reading a lot of books where the protagonists were kids, which seems. Mm ridiculous to me but i know it's true the ones that i do remember reading i i used to collect and i didn't get that many of them but there were these books about uh it was like tom swift jr and they were like these really old school they're like written in the 50s or 60s i think it must have been the 50s and they were like flash gordon style sci-fi but they were about this kid who was the young kid in a family of sci-fi adventurers and so i read those and and i they were kind of fun but i kind of grew out of them pretty quick because i was like yeah yeah. 50s, 50s sci-fi. Well, I just William, so as we all know what it's like to be chased out of our neighbor's orchard after stealing too many tadpoles from his pond, you know. <laughs> so universal. Yeah. <laughs> I grew up in a country town. I know what that's like. No, I really don't. Um, um, yeah. But no, I know I feel sort of the same way, Ben. Like I think certainly by the time I started reading Terry Pratchett books, hmm. most of what I was reading was adult fiction probably. Yeah. 
sort of by that point or on the cusp of it. And certainly the protagonists, I think, were mostly older than me, yeah. older teens, young adults yeah, um, or adults. Yeah. The only other thing that was even close for me was the Paul Jennings books. Mm. Where oh, you know, fair. all his Good protagonists point. were teenagers, but they were always it was always a new character every time. Which was yeah. the weird thing about the TV show around the twist that adapted them is that then all this weird shit just happened to this one family, <laughs> and it was a bit like oh, which uh, vaguely echoes his own experience because he did kind of live in that kind of yeah. It's, you should read his memoir; it's very good. oh yeah. No, I'd love to. Well, look, we should we should get into this book, um, and maybe we can <laughs> try and imagine what it would have been like for us to read it. <laughs> As 11-year-olds, because that's how old Tiffany is in this book. Uh, And um, we should start, as we normally do, with a reading of the blurb. And I I noticed that the blurb in my edition, I have the uh, the kind of... Fancy um, one. It is the fancy one. It's the gift edition, I think it's called, um, which has a very nice shiny cover. But it has a very short blurb. So I think I'm going to read the the more traditional blurb from an older edition. Uh, Not that I don't like this one, but it's a bit mean to Tiffany. Maybe we'll come back to it, but I'll read the normal one. So here we go. A real witch can ride a broomstick, cast spells, and make a proper shamble out of nothing. Eleven-year-old Tiffany Aching can't. A real witch never casually steps out of her body, leaving it empty. Tiffany does. And there's something just waiting for a handy body to take over. Something ancient and horrible, which can't die. Now she's got to fight back and learn to be a real witch really quickly with the help of Archwitch Mistress Weatherwax and the truly amazing Miss Level. Cribbins and us! Oh yes, and the Knackmack Fiegel, the rowdiest, toughest, smelliest bunch of fairies ever to be thrown out of fairyland for being drunk at two in the afternoon. They'll fight anything. And even they might not be enough. I dot, actually realised. Yeah, dot dot dot. Is there a dot dot dot? There certainly is. <laughs> yeah, um, it's strongly implied. If there's not, mm. yeah. Well, I actually realised my so my uh, my blurb is actually kind of a subset of this, but then the, the last line of it is different. So it's just the bit about no real witch would casually step out of their body through to the something Asian and horrible which can't die, and then it just says to deal with it. Tiffany has to go to the very heart of what makes her a witch. Which, I mean, look, is a nice yeah. encapsulation of the sort of theme of the book and the journey that she goes on. But it's a, it just means the main bit is like, don't, you know, witches shouldn't do this, but Tiffany did this and now she's got trouble. <laughs> You're like, yeah. oh. Which I that? think, you know, that's legit. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Like, and I think that's, I mean, we'll probably get to this as we start talking through it. But again, one of the things where, like sometimes the latter books are more interesting is that this is still sort of, you know, ultimately when we get to the end, she she does it herself, but she does it with the help of the Fiegel and with the help of Granny. Mm. Um, and I think it's interesting to, f- like, to frame it through that blurb is focused on Tiffany versus framing it through the other blurb is focused a bit more like it's the Fiegel's. Mm. as the sidekicks yeah and when you guys do the winter smith episode like if i think about that there's much less involvement from them it becomes much more in tiffany's hands and that's what being a 11 year old girl is kind of like or 11 year old person Mm. you know like you've got people working behind the scenes to help you out with stuff but you are starting to have to take responsibility and do things on your own yeah 
you know? You don't get away with your, your nonsense as much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you don't have the training fegals on your bike. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you yes, know what I mean? I Because um, for me, the interesting bit about these books is definitely Tiffany versus the Nakmak Fiegel. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. The bits that they're more involved in are often the bits that I'm less driven by. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. One of the things that struck me is, I mean, firstly, she's two years older now than in the previous book. Mm. She's only nine in the first book, so it's quite a bit of time has passed and she's grown up quite a lot. And that's quite well, a... Well, Wentworth hasn't. He still wants a sweetie. I'm glad he's in like 10 seconds of the book and then fucks right off and stays there <laughs> because I still hate him. Oh, I mean, he's very annoying. I, I get he's you. He's two years older. He's not a toddler anymore. He's he's no. He's, he's, he's too old for that bullshit. He's just a brat. Yeah. He's yeah. just a spoiled brat. Well, he's yeah. he's like three or four years old. You know, it's what are you gonna do? Teach him some responsibility. I'm uh, sure, like Tiffany wasn't like well, that at three or four years old. Well, that's true. And this is actually where I was going with that. Was I was thinking that for us, like when we think about what we were doing at age nine to eleven, that's like the middle of primary school. Mm. That's like you know getting towards the end of primary school yeah. by the time you're eleven. You're probably in year four or five, depending on you know what, how old you are and how precocious. Yeah, mm-hmm. but for Tiffany's world, you know, a lot of those milestones happen quite a lot earlier like where you yeah. have to be more independent, where you go off. I mean, we're talking about, you know, very agrarian. Yes. And, I mean, I think it's in the book. She's sort of on the young side to go off into service, but it's not unheard of, Yeah, you know, because she's got her prowess with cheese and that kind of thing. She's probably on the young side to be leaving home yeah. and going into that role, but not absurdly so. Hmm. Like, it's not like her parents would be like, oh, no, she's far too young for that. They're like, well, she's a little young. She's yeah. a very responsible girl with her head on her shoulders and she can write and read. Like, <laughs> Absolutely. It's not like she's going to school. Yeah. It is a different developmental kind of timeline, I suppose. Yeah. And it's kind of inevitable reading this now, you know, in the, in the modern context, for me to think about it in contrast with Harry Potter, you know, the other the mm. archetypal, like, young person finds out they're magical and learns how to do it series now. It's got some similarities. I mean, she's it, there's a secret, you know, it's a secret world that she's entering, which is interesting because witches are not a secret in most of the disc world, but I think to make it work and to make it sort of a bit more accessible to a round world audience, um, Pratchett's decided that the people of the chalk don't like or trust witches. And so yeah. there's this whole thing where they're going to tell a story to her parents, which is not really a lie, but it kind of leaves out all of the witch stuff. Yeah. And there's that great line, you know, when they're up in the hills and they're going to walk up and, and meet Miss Level, she says, now we're going to wait until just before the coach gets here and then we're going to walk off and then the cart guy will tell your parents that he dropped us off just before the coach arrived and that will be true and everyone will be happy. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you know, it's, it's kind of nice that way, even though she seems a little bit, she's a little nervous about it. I get the impression that she, it's a bit new to her recruiting young witches from the chalk, well, obviously from the chalk area, because Tiffany's the only one, but, um, but the, from a place where people don't trust witches, because up in the Ram Tops, mm. everybody's like, well, we do, and we might not like the witches, but we trust them. We know but they're, they're gonna a do part it of right. life. Yeah. We yeah. need them. Yeah. Uh, so there's that whole story, yeah, where she's going off into service and, uh, and she leaves. And the whole, the leaving sequence is, there's a lot of really nice moments. Like I didn't know what to expect with this. It's really, I didn't grow up in the country, country, the, how the chalk is, but I did mm. grow up in a rural area. 
And I just found there is something so simple and evocative about that little sequence. And it's high summer and it's hot and dusty and quiet and dry. And I just, I could feel it. Yeah. In a really like visceral kind of specific way. Uh, yeah. Like that particular bit and just the solitude of it and the being alone with yourself and your thoughts kind of thing and traveling mm. a lonesome road. Like, yeah, I love, I loved that bit. Mm. There was like, it also made, reminded me both of, I don't know, Tolkien and also Dino and Jones. There's a real sort of house moving castle feel, like the book okay. to it. Cause there is like one of her sisters, like in the book, not so much in the movie, who goes off to mm. get trained with the witch. And that whole sequence with Miss Level reminded me a lot of that. Yeah, there's a whole lot of different things that reminded me of that. Yeah. It was great. And it's interesting coming at it because it sort of teaches you what witchcraft is from the perspective of maybe you've never met proper Discworld witches before. Because I think mm. he has written this book with the assumption that you've probably read The We Free Men, but that might be all. Yes. Mm. Uh, yeah. And unlike a lot of Discworld books where there's only a little bit of information about how things work, like there's enough to get you through the story. This one kind of goes over a ground that's been really well trodden, I think, in some of the witches' books. But it comes mm. at it from a different angle. Like all the yeah. stuff about what witchcraft is really about, which comes in towards the end, which, or and the middle as well, when she's doing the training stuff. And I just, I really liked it because it was just a new perspective on that, you know, because it's a different audience, not just the reader's audience, but as in Tiffany is a different mm -hmm. audience. Like we haven't really had a proper apprentice witch yeah. from this perspective. I because was just thinking that all the other witch or in the Discworld witches books. They all already know how to do it, basically. Even Magrat in the first books, like she is already a witch. And even Agnes. The closest is Agnes. And I'm struggling to kind of think of anything <laughs> rude to Agnes. Um, I'm struggling to think of anything particularly magical she does, apart from having Perdita in her head. And the mm. voice, the voice things. And the voice. Sure. But whether that's magical or just exceptional. Mm. But she, I think she gets it, though. Like, because, you know, she's yeah. part of the, the coven that she's part That's of. That's right. Which, like, yeah, she already. Yeah. Yeah, she's got her bona fides. And she's sort of resisting it. She's like, I know what it is and I don't want it, but you yeah. really want me to do it, which makes me not want to do it even more, <laughs> which yeah. which is kind of nice. And here Tiffany Whereas has a Tiffany, little bit Whereas but... Tiffany's much more like, yeah, I can do this thing. You yeah. guys don't think I can do it. Like, just, just let me just do it stop, already. Stop pestering me. Like, I can yeah. do it. Why do I have to learn how to do it when I can already do it? Yeah. Which, again, is a very, I, there's a sort of petulant teenageness mm. to her in some ways that I think is really well captured. And But also the whole thing where she's, I keep thinking about it as her stepping outside of herself, which I think is the phrase that she uses in the book which is the thing that attracts the Hiver, the, this weird, mm. which we'll, we'll talk about in a second because it's introduced very early on in the book. And she does it, she knows there's something not quite right about doing it. Yeah. But I, it, there's just something so uh, very definitely this is a theme that I and I think everyone would really glom onto as like a, a young teenager or even a tween, you know, uh, just like, yeah, there's something that now I know how to do that I'm just doing for myself and I know maybe it's not quite right. But uh, I don't really know the consequence of it. Either. I wrote this in my notes as well. It's like not only is Tiffany not just in this book, but not only is she kind of having to deal with going through like puberty, she's mm. also going through witch puberty. Yeah. <laughs> like, and it's just 
like yeah. as if as if normal puberty wasn't hard enough but it, yeah it's like she has all these things happening yeah that her body can kind of do that her mind or herself doesn't quite know how it's happening or why yeah and she can't necessarily control it entirely and i don't think i wouldn't say it's necessarily shame But, like, there's probably some sort of sense of I don't know what this is or how to talk about it or who I should talk to, and I think that's a very teenage thing to Mm. feel. So it's not necessarily even that you think it's wrong, but you just can't even articulate, like, what questions would you ask, what would you say, how would you describe this? Mm. Um, So you just, yeah, you're exploring it for yourself. Yeah. Can you tell I'm talking about masturbating? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. In terms of symbolism, is like the hiver in some ways, not in, entirely, but in some ways, like the monster you become as a teenager sometimes, where you just act like a massive jerk to your mm. loved ones mm. and you know that it's not you and you know that it's going to pass eventually. But there's words coming out of your mouth and behaviors that you're doing that you're just like, what is this? Why am I doing this? Someone stop me. I'm, oh, now I'm calling <laughs> my best friend like a jerk. Like, yeah, that kind of thing. And also, you know, it's called the hiver, which is like pimples. So, you know, <laughs> is it? I guess it is. Yeah. I hadn't yeah. thought about it like that. Because I very briefly learned French in high school. I always wanted to pronounce it hiver, like shiver with no S on the start. Oh, yeah. So it was only a couple of reads in where I'm like, oh, a hiver, because it's like a hive mind and there's mm. bees. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but I do also like to think of it like a, like a shiver because, like, the effect that it kind of has is almost like a shiver. Um yeah, you know, through people or through the world. So it's like a hiver. Um, okay. I, I suspect that's how yeah. the Beagles say it. I'm sure they call it a, a hiver, you know. <laughs> a hiver. Uh, so, you know, that could be that could be how they say it. But, yeah, it's really, it is creepy. And it, I liked, I didn't expect it to show up so early. Mm. But then it does take a while to get going. Yeah. You know, it's moving really slowly. Yeah. And there's that, there's that tension where you just, you know, it's coming. Like yeah. it's trying to find yeah. her. It can kind of, it doesn't really smell her, but it can sense her and it's on it the way. Follows. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I liked, I, I was surprised, but I, I liked also that the Feagles notice it. Like they're onto it from the start. Mm. And they're like, it's, it's, I don't know, yeah. he's going to get it. And it, you're like, this is great. <laughs> this is yeah. awesome. And then also, I mean, all this stuff is set up, like, in the first chapter. There's also the tension within the Feagles where Jeannie, the mm. new Kelder, is like, no, stay here. Like, she's not the Kelder. I'm the Kelder. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I'm telling you, your place is here. Look after us. And I like the way that's resolved, too. But it's, uh, yeah, there's so much stuff happens in this first chapter. We haven't even talked about Roland yet. Creepy 15-year-old Roland yeah. giving silver horses to an 11-year-old girl. Who wants to, to talk about girl? Roland? Mm. Wait a couple of years, you creepy guy. Yeah, it is weird when you think about their ages. Yeah, but again, you know, he is a prince or a baron's son. Like, he Mm. is nobility and they do kind of court younger women and eligible women and do it in a really weird and stuffy and uptight kind of a way um, and and give weird presents. That was kind of like Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip, that kind of age when they met. I mean, mm. yeah. Which I don't think makes it cool. No. <laughs> but it makes it kind of believable. 
I mean, it's also, again, you know, when you think about the kind of society and culture that they live in and yes. the sort of where it sits within our historical sort of understanding of that, it all makes sense there. But, you know, also it is a bit creepy. But yeah. but then again, you know. And he's he's just such a, he's such a drip as well. <laughs> yeah. Like, and I love, I love the whole Tiffany thing of like she curtsies to him because it makes him all flustered and makes him stutter. And she's like, so she does it again. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like, yeah, you show him. Yeah. Like And then but then she keeps the gift that he gives her. And I, I get that. I get it. It's not so much that it's from him, I think, but that mm. it's this beautiful piece of workmanship that's really meaningful to her and her relationship to the land she's from. Mm. And thoughtful. I think the other thing that's really interesting about it is that you know, Roland gives her this present. She doesn't open it straight away, which is sort of like Miss Tick telling telling as well. <laughs> She's like, I'll just stuff it away, stuff it away. Not going to show Miss Tick. Opens it up, and it's this beautiful, intricate, and therefore obviously very expensive gift, which she keeps and she mm. wears, um, or puts on at least um, a couple of times. I think she puts it on when the Hiver has her as well. And then at the end, like once everything's more or less resolved, Granny's like, I will teach you everything. I will teach you all the things you need to know about how to be a witch if you throw that trinket away. Mm. And Tiffany like looks at it and like contemplates it and she says no. Mm. And Granny has said to her, you have to know when to be human in order to know how to be a witch. I think there's a really interesting thing about I hesitate to say vanity because that has so much negative connotation and sinful connotation to it. But I think witches are so caught up in appearance and reputation and that kind of thing. They know the power of objects. Mm. Um, So it's, you know, it is a test that Granny is kind of like saying, throw away this thing. Um, like this thing that's quite beautiful and clearly meaningful. But like only the mediocre witches are kind of obsessed with that. Like when you think about the main strong witches like Nanny Og and Granny Weatherwax, they're not as focused on appearances. Magrat kind of is and she's not as good as them. And then there's the whole sequence with all the girls. So, yeah. But, I mean, I think there's still... You've got your hats, you've got all that kind of business, you've got your markers of witchhood. Mm. There is degrees of that. I guess maybe not even external appearance, but just the appearance of strength or the appearance of knowing what's going on or a reputational thing. But I also think there needs to be a little bit of, you know, vanity is a human thing and pride is Mm. a human thing. And I think witches just do have that little twinkling sprinkling of those vices like they they have power and they know they need to control it in a way but there's still that temptation anyway it's just yeah it's so fascinating and this is what i mean it's so not about roland Mm. no but i mean also when you first sort of noticing that other people might like you and 11 is quite young to Mm. do that i guess but not outside the you know, people do start noticing around that age or a little bit older. It's just nice. It doesn't matter if it's yeah. someone who you think yeah, is kind of a, that's, a dick. That's right. <laughs> I mean, you know, to a point, like you don't want them to, to show too much interest, but it's nice to know that somebody's like, oh, you're pretty cool and do something really nice for you. And I think if it had been a, a shit present, 
mm. uh, she would have been like, I'll throw it away. And mm. even if it had been quite expensive, she might have like found some way to get rid of it. But because it's something that is actually very thoughtful and very appropriate, mm. um, it, it kind of shows a side to him as well to us that, as she says, you know, he's less awful <laughs> or he's less, he's less yeah. of a, an idiot. Oh, well, yeah, he must be. Like if he thought of this present. So there's, I think there's an element of that, but I think you're also right. It's not specifically because it's from him. She likes the gift. It makes her think more of him, but her not throwing it away, I think, has nothing to do with Roland because I think it's more symbolic of her throwing away her connection to the chalk and to mm. her home. Mm. Yeah. And that's something she's not willing to do. Yeah, totally. And it's nice that we sort of we get introduced to the, the horse, the white horse in this book, and it becomes, you know, a real symbol of the chalk and that place. Mm beyond the things we already know about it and drawn from you know terry pratchett's real place where he lived you know not not far from where he lived anyway in uffington there's a real white horse mm. uh so it's it was yeah it's it's very nice and it ties into the idea of like appearances aren't necessarily tied to what something is like the the horse doesn't look like a literal horse it's the essence of a horse so it's mm. kind of tiffany doesn't look like a witch or her name doesn't sound like a witch but she is like the essence of one more yeah. so perhaps than all the the other perspective which is around her. So it's, yeah. know, there's nice parallels throughout. Yeah. And uh, look, she keeps going. She's not aware of the hiver yet or the danger that she's in. No, but we are. And she keeps leaving her body. I'm like, stop. Yeah. Stop doing that. <laughs> Stay there. <laughs> Get a mirror, please. Yeah. And again, it's about vanity. Yeah, mm. most of the time she does it. Yeah, it's just mm. to look at herself uh, yeah. when she doesn't have a mirror. And when Miss Level finds that out later on from the Feagles, she's like, what are you doing? <laughs> so annoyed. But the trip up the mountain's quite nice. I particularly like the kind of vibe that goes on between Miss Tick and Tiffany, where, you know, she's a, her teacher and she's got respect for her, but she's also like, I'm not going to tell you everything. I'm, mm. I got my secrets. I know things you don't know. Miss Tick has never really done that much actual magic in front of Tiffany. Mm. It's always been about the teaching because that's her disguise. And, we, I mean, we've seen her make a shamble before. She does it in The Wheat Free Men, but it doesn't get named and we don't know what it is. And here she does it again and it explodes, but they don't <laughs> really know why or what's going on. They just know something's yeah. a bit not quite right. Yeah. Leaves her with some egg on her face. Yes. Hey. <laughs> I like that they establish, like, this... Pratchett's a master of like shelving things. Like, you know, here's a mention of something. Uh, it's gonna, we're gonna mention it a couple of times at the start of the book. Then you're gonna forget about it. And then right near the end, it's gonna come back in and you're gonna understand why something happens. And so at the start here, he establishes that a shamble always has to have some element of, of a living thing in it, which can be something symbolic or part of a living thing like an egg, or it can be an actual living thing. Like Miss Level's got a, a beetle in a matchbox. Which also explodes. Yeah, so sad. Oh, it's imagining that little beetle. Imagine the one from Mulan. I was like, oh. Oh, no. But they go, they go up the hill. And uh, although I did, I I just want to pause briefly to say I really recognize places that I've been to in two shirts, the town where they get off the cart, (laughs) which is just big enough to have like a little sign in a window that says souvenirs. I love the the script. My, My book, I don't know if this is in your edition, but there's a little illustration of the little two shirts on a line carving oh, that she yes. buys to send home. And it's just so cute. It's it has a bright. dog in it. And it yeah. Yeah. The dog as well. Um, the place where you're from, not where you go to. Yeah. yeah. I love that. Yeah. I've lived in a, a place like that, but yeah, I just like that whole scene. And they got the hill to meet Miss Level 
in the field and uh, Mystic's like, I'm just going to go ahead. And this is the other time that Tiffany steps outside herself to because she's like, I'm not going to be yeah. left out. I want to know what yeah. you're talking. Are you talking about me? What are you talking about? Um, and the Hydra is getting a bit close. And uh, so both of the other witches sense it. They do their shambles, which explode. And, and they're like, have you been doing anything? They speak to Tiffany. And, uh, Nothing. No, I wasn't doing anything. <laughs> um, she it does not sound like that, just to be clear. I did not think no. she sounds like that. But I love also, because I, I didn't know. I had no idea because I hadn't read this book before. I didn't know anything about Miss Level. And they're dropping all these hints, you know, where there's the uh-huh. thing like, oh, I left my glasses yeah. on my other nose. Uh, or like, oh, I thought I was standing over there. I'm like, what? How yeah. is she? I, I actually, my first guess, my thought was, is this, is she like got a weird sort of time travel thing? Like, is that what's happening? Is she like unstuck in time somehow? And then there's the great flight on the broomstick, which I, as someone who also yeah. does not always deal well with heights, I'm very much <laughs> uh, identified with Tiffany yeah. in this sequence. But it just, just the way it was like going down the yeah. waterfall. They, oh no, and they go straight up the waterfall and then yeah. over the thing and, was, and head oh. chopping. Oh, like I like how to... I like how the solution to like you know flying on a broomstick. You like have fear of flying the same way we might do in planes. Yeah. So the solution is kind of like, okay, so we just go real close to the ground, just like riding a freaking <laughs> motorbike. That's not it's like as if at that's all. less scary. Like that's just as scary in a different way. Oh, I'm very scared. Um, Tiffany throws up twice. No wonder. I do like that Miss Level has the one of the coolest broomsticks. Like she's got the one that disguises itself as a bundle <laughs> of sticks. Um, yeah, the, um, the retractable. Yeah, yeah, that tractable was very handle. Cool. Flies. She's hundred percent someone who'd have a folding bike. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a commuter broomstick. Yeah. Yeah, nice. Oh, that's great. But then they they arrive at the cottage, and Tiffany tries to make herself at home. It's a, I like that she's got a fairly typical witch's cottage. Like this, it's more the things that are in it that make it a bit different, and her. But there's a few nice little touches. Like she's got garden gnomes. <laughs> Yeah. Like, I haven't seen those in the Discworld before. Okay, this is great. Uh, and she's got the circus posters up around the place, which we later learn is because she was in the circus. And yes, something. Yes, and it's all, it's all very jolly. It's all yeah. like very doilies and blankets. And there's a chest of drawers in the bedroom versus Tiffany's bedroom at home, where it's the place you go to sleep. Like, yeah. So it's, <laughs> it's just, just a very bed. spartan. And then Miss Level. Like, she's quite, probably not extravagant, but I think if you're thinking through Tiffany's eyes hmm. <laughs> there's a lot in that house yeah she's someone who'd have a good chuckle at an ann getty's calendar in the shop but not buy it <laughs> <laughs> that is the most accurate but i mean she's also you know she's um you know she's described as quite a big lady and like um mm. i can't remember if she's like got quite a lot of trinkets but i feel as though mm. like in the same way that mrs arwege is quite trinkety yes miss level seems to be quite trinkety as well she describes like a hen like with the glasses yes yeah yeah she's like a mother hen kind of that's right yeah yeah it was interesting because i was i was trying to picture her and i'm not quite sure who i saw her as but i saw i did see her so this big sort of slightly jolly you know because she's she is nice but also but also because this is the thing that Tiffany picks up on is that, yes, yeah, she's very friendly and she's very nice, but there's something just not quite right. Like there's something a little yeah. bit unusual. Like she's over, she's over friendly. 
Yeah, like she's compensating. Two times as friendly, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And because this is where we find out exactly what's going on with her. Uh, Although first we do meet Oswald the Undergeist. Uh, We don't really meet him. He's just a sort of weird... Or it. Well, I was going to say, not really Mm. him. Yeah, it's just a a, a weird force that cleans things up. I love how she teases him, though. Like, she opens the drawer and takes, like, out a fork and then, like, puts it in with the spoons and closes the drawer. Oh, like, that's torture for the That's giving him something to do so he doesn't, like, do something like you're doing. It's like, you know, Mm. leaving in a typo so that um, your editor has something to find so they (laughs) They don't mess with your actual Make bigger changes. Yeah, we've all or done like, that. Or like, oh, you know, we've all got cats or our cat adjacent. It's like an enrichment toy, like one of those games that they have to try and get food out of. Oh, yeah. yes. Just so you can get on with your day. Yeah. Uh, so I was like her, her ghost cat that tidies up instead of makes a mess. Yeah. Uh, imagine. Uh, I can't so imagine good. that. I cannot imagine it. Um, um, but, uh, but. <laughs> But yeah, uh, and the- yes, only only known as Oswald because Miss Level thinks of it, thinks of the spirit as like a a little man with a fussy mustache and a little dustpan <laughs> and broom or something. Like now that which I could, absolutely would be, I could picture yeah. that so clearly. Yeah, uh, it's just like it's like Mister Sheen. Yes, <laughs> just yes. like disembodied, disembodied <laughs> little Mr. little Sheen. fellow, but pleasant and round in a little suit. Uh. Oh, yeah. I love this now. Um, not like the cleaner from Black Books, who's sinister. <laughs> oh, yeah, no, not that guy. Oh. The other thing, because we find out now, is there's another mislevel. Yeah. And it's like, oh, there's twins. Okay. But they're but not. But it's not. They're not really twins. They're, they're just one person who happens to have two bodies, which I thought was such a great concept. I love this. And she's very comfortable with it. But, you know, she does sort of speak out of one mouth and then out of the other one. And she just yeah. sort of does things with all four sets of hands without even really needing to look at herself. And it is a bit weird, but also kind of wonderful. And I think there was a little bit of the the Roald Dahls about it, where it's this thing that's quite wonderful on the surface, but also very, very creepy, <laughs> even though there's nothing wrong with it. Like has clearly led her to a quite lonely life and quite yeah. an outcast sort of a life. Yeah, um, there was that beautiful flashback where they, she was talking about those twins from the circus, the tightrope walkers, and she was like, "Oh, for a moment we thought they were like us," but and then she sort of just fades yeah, off. Yeah, and that's beautiful. It says like so much in a sentence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was amazing. Yeah, so I really I love this chapter. It was great. But when we learn a couple other things. In this chapter we get a nice bit of background on the Hiver. Uh, we get an extract from a book that's in Unseen University from a oh, wizard. I love that book. <laughs> <laughs> who tried to, to trap it using some magical device and, like, was writing about, it's not dangerous, it can give me great magical power. And then his writings just evolve into the yeah. scribblings of a madman. Uh, and he ends up disintegrated and being buried in a small jar. And it's, I just, I thought that was great. Which I wonder mm. exactly how that went down. Mm. Yes. Like, because the hiver is not a physical force until it's part of you. Mm. So I I was rereading this like that little bit today actually and I'm like, oh, this is potentially upsetting because like this is him scribbling frantically while the other wizards are hammering on the door of his locked study and I'm like, did they kill him? <laughs> like mm. did they destroy the body to put off the like yeah. the demon? And I'm yeah. like, they did. Well, they might have. I wasn't sure about that because that was my first thought too. But there's also I think, yeah, the only 
danger from the hiver on a physical level is from the hiver's host. Yeah, because it, it does kind of it does sort of destroy you, but it's kind of intimated it's not a physical destruction. It just, it sort of just destroys your mind. Sends you mad. And then and then your mind becomes no longer useful for it to live in, so it moves on. Well, yeah. isn't it like power, like true power corrupts everyone and it gives you, like, it, it, it yeah. augments the worst parts of you, yeah. so it destroys yeah. you through your yourself. Because, I mean, it's quite a metaphysical discussion about what is this part of you that is the essential you, if you're talking about, well, you know, if it's something else took over your mind, but it had all your memories and all your thoughts, but it wasn't you, yeah. what is the bit that's been yeah. removed? And that's that's kind of the question here. Like you were saying, Liz, like, and not just something that happens when you're a teenager, even as an adult, you have moments where it's like you are saying things or doing things and you're like, this doesn't feel like me, but this is also coming from me. Yeah. And yeah, I think the hiver definitely turns those parts of you like right up loud and quietens down all of the like empathy and care and compassion Mm. sides of you. And it just becomes the hunger and the ambition and the competitiveness, I suppose. Because there's that great bit in um, the Wizard's book about how he thinks that this is what made fish walk out of the sea. And yeah. All, like, great yeah. balance. This is what has driven yeah. life on the disc. Yeah. Camps down self-preservation perhaps in some ways as well. Yeah. Which is interesting because he's so – he's kind of close – to what Tiffany kind of eventually discovers about the hiver later on. Yeah. But not quite. He's kind of looking at it from slightly the wrong angle. And also, you know, he's whether this is his thoughts beforehand or it's what the hiver's sort of finding in his brain and accentuating, um, he's also looking at it as a, an opportunity to make himself, you know. And, again, maybe something one of you guys feel or have a handle on. Mm. I'm not sure whether... Like there's just one hiver, it's the hiver, or if there's multiple. Like we know that the hiver that was in Sensibility Bustle is the same one yeah. that Tiffany meets and has. But like are they a species or, you know, a form of like mushrooms where all of them have been in all of the people that they've been in, kind of like you oh. the shared, con- like a hive oh, mind. Yes, yeah. Oh, I see. I hadn't thought so about like it like that. So like there would be different instances yeah i like like five for example but yeah five of them went into five different people they'd all still share those experiences yeah so yeah i'm I'm not sure well i think it could go either way i mean certainly the way that the wizards think about it and write about it and the way the feagles talk about it and they seem to know not much but enough about them to recognize one they talk about it as being a hiver so that they're, they're that's what I that's what I was thinking. One. Like, yeah, so I got that impression, but they're very rare, and I think that's yeah. because I mean, it's also intimated that they float throughout the whole universe. They don't just show mm. up on the disc world. So this might be just the one on the disc world. But look back in the chalk, the Feagles. Well, Rob Feagle is pretty despondent. He's like worried about what's going <laughs> to happen to Tiffany. He's just sitting. He's the big very, man's dead. I know. He's just acting not Feagle like at all. He's just sitting there going, "Oh, this is terrible." He's refused to drink. Oh. He must be dead. Hard liquor. But oh, I was, so I was confused by this because they think they're dead already. So like, what is it weird for them to be like he's dead? It is a little weird. Well, I think we know what they mean in, in context. Yes. But he's living. Yeah, he's yeah. living. He's alive. Uh, I mean, because they think they've died and now they're in the afterlife. So I guess they can still say, I'm dead. 
I mean, because they can die in the afterlife yeah. and they supposedly yeah, I think go they back recognize- to the- <laughs> It's weird. I feel like they recognise it as dying. It's just that mm. what happens next is life, not yeah. death. Yeah. But, yeah, fair point, Liz. Yeah. This terminology thing. Bit, I was um, like, well, yeah. you call it something else. But I, I did find, I loved that whole exchange. It was great. Because it was all in their voices. And yeah. It was just a joy to hear in my head. Oh, yeah. And I just, I like, like I said before, I like the way that it's resolved where Jeannie comes up to him and is like, all right, look, you've got to stay here. I know you're worried about her, but it's a hiver. You can't kill it. You're going to die. I'll promise me you'll stay here. And he's like, yeah, I'll stay here. And then she's like, all right, good. Now, as Kelda, I'm, I'm ordering you to go and save the hag. Yeah, it's just really nice. And then just some of the little details that we learn about fecal life. Like she's already pregnant with her first, I think it's seven children. One of eight. whom. Seven yeah, sons eight. and one seven girl. Sons that's right. And eight, one. Yeah. Very special daughter. And that's seen as a great good luck sign that you get a daughter so early. And you're mm-hmm. like, okay, great. Awesome. Mm-hmm. And so Rob's like, okay, well, then I'm going to put my Which plan seems an together. odd thing to be good luck because the life of a Kelda. It's lonely. Does not seem That's something true. you would wish upon a person, but yeah. nonetheless. And it would be hard for a young Kelda to teach her daughter straight away the ways Indeed. of being a Kelda when you've only just started doing it yourself. So that's yeah. a challenge. Yeah, and like, yeah, Jeannie says, oh, I feel like I want to find the quotes. I thank you, Kelda, said Rob, anybody. I'll do as you bid. I'll take some lads and find the big wee hag for the good of the hills. It can I be a good life for the poor wee big wee thing all alone and far from home among strangers. I said, Jeannie, turning her face away, I can that too. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. Oh, what a moment. It was so right? great. Right? Yeah. Beautiful. And, and it, it is, it's um like as much as I, as a, yeah, like don't necessarily always gel or vibe with the fegal parts of the stories, like, yeah, there's bits, there's bits that get me. Yeah. They're not usually there for emotional uh, resonance. They're usually no, there to, to mess no. things up and make the story go forward. Certainly not the male Feagles. No. Like, I think the old Kelda in We Free Men mm. and certainly the coming books with Jeannie. Like, I think it says in here, like, commonly accepted that it's the female Feagles who get the brains. Yeah. But it's also the female Feagles who kind of have those kind of moments. Mm the little bit of thoughtfulness and consideration versus the male fegal tendency to just rush in and headbutt things and <laughs> let God sort it out. Yeah. 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 And look, that's they get straight on it. And mm. uh as, Oh, and as, there's the best sequence where they're doing the the, the classic like oh, yeah. know, three the kids in a suit, but yeah. A whole bunch of fegals in the thing. And I love that it becomes a little, like, microcosm for society because they're perfectly fine living in basically a monarchy. But when it comes to, like, being the different parts of a body, suddenly they're like, oh, you in the stomach don't know what it's like here down in the feet. You've yes. got no idea. And it's just, it's so good. And the image Don't of make them me the come car- down there. <laughs> yeah. And the image of them in the cart while, all the, like, the passengers cower in the corner because they can't get out while, like, bits of the body are talking to each other. And then yeah. a blue man pops out of presumably the fly, the yeah. way it's described. Yeah. It's yeah. Just- yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, yeah. Just, I don't know if I want to see uh, it in the film because it's just so good in my mind. But yeah. I mean, it's like a euphemism, isn't it? It's like a one-eyed trouser snake. It's like a a oh, no. red-haired, blue-skinned man. Oh, oh, oh dear. Oh, Sorry. Is, no, no I, I mean, we're, it's it's how it is, you know. You've got a smurf in your pants, uh, an angry smurf. <laughs> no. 
Just but popping it, a fagel. T- <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, ruined. Ruined all oh. intimacy forever. No. Uh, that got me. That got me. Great. Just, just, just think of right that phrase. Yeah. <laughs> But I, I love that also it starts with Rob, who's at the start of the book is being forced to learn to write and read a bit yes. by Jeannie, uh, yeah. writing just, he's got, right, we've made a plan, but all he's done is written plun, PLN on a bit of paper. Yeah. It's like, right, now we've got a plan. We just have to figure out what to do. <laughs> yeah. He has a plan. Well, it's good that, like, because whenever you just say the plan aloud, the, it doesn't work. So yeah, that's true. Yeah. I also like that uh, they introduced the new Gonegal, because the old Gonegal He's gone. He's gone back to his, his homeland because he's getting old. And the new one is uh, one of the Kelda's brothers. I feel like we didn't appreciate Liz's joke there. Which, yeah. did I miss it? He's gone. He's gone a gold. Yeah. Oh, he's gone a gold. <laughs> he's gone oh, no. a gold. It's true. He's Thank gone you. a gold off. Appreciate it. Being appreciated. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, uh, I like that it's, it's him who comes up with this idea because it's something that he's heard a story about in his own clan. And he introduces the idea to them. And off they go. I liked also that they pay people. They they spend mm. a lot of money in this because they love stealing gold and hoarding it. But once they've got it, they don't really have any use for it. So they're quite happy to give it away. <laughs> and it's valuable actual gold. Yeah. Yeah, it has no value to them really. Yeah. Apart from, I uh, don't know if it's in this one, you know, kind of like makes the cave a little bit brighter. Oh, yeah. I think that's like, they say reflects that the, the light. One. But apart from that, it just doesn't have any use to them. Mm. Yeah. You can't eat it. You can't drink it. Yeah. But the but the big jobs, big jobs, freaking love gold. Like everyone knows that. Yeah. Yeah. That's why they steal it. Can't get enough of it. Yeah. <laughs> and the reason they're doing this, we should say, is because with Miss Levels flying on the broomstick and and all of the cart and coach travel, even at fegal speeds, it's going to take them a long time to get to Tiffany, and they're worried they're going to be too late. So they they get on the cart, they pay some money, they get on the coach, and while they're on the way, Miss Level is taking Tiffany out on rounds, teaching her the ways of witchcraft, the yeah. real ways of witchcraft, which are basically looking after people and being nice to them. Chores. And so they meet all these people, many of whom are jerks, but one of whom is Mr. Weevil, oh. who just... Oh, Gets you in a weird place in the heart, doesn't he? So many feels. He reminds me of my great-grandfather, because my grandfather died before my great-grandfather. And I just remember after that happened, and after we'd been to the funeral, that he just... He just said it out loud. He was just sort of sitting there by himself and people were kind of standing around. He just said, it's not right for a man to outlive his son. And this was a man who was mm. you know, in his late 80s at the time. And uh, I get that real, that vibe from Mr. Weevil, you know, his children are all dead. His wife is dead. He's all alone and old and just obsessed with not being a burden to anyone. And it's mm. so sad. And yet there is this sort of spark of life in him, even at this point in the book mm. where, yeah. you know, he's obsessed about making sure he's got his box full of money so that he can pay for his own funeral. But he's excited to see people. And even though he's a bit confused and he sometimes mistakes them for people who are dead or members of his family who aren't around anymore, there's just a life in him. Mm. That even though there's a lot about him that's quite sad, there is just this spark in him right from the beginning, I found. I just really loved him. And I kind of, and I, you know, I didn't know what was going to happen in the story, but I kind of just knew... This wasn't be the last, you know. He was mm. not just here for a scene. This guy's important. Yeah, hmm. yeah. I loved, I loved Mr. Weevil. And the fact that he wears a suit every day and is just that you can, you've seen people like that. It's yeah. Just, mm. yeah, yeah. He's very real. He is very real. So yes, yeah, she's she's doing all this uh, non magical witchcraft. She still can't make a shamble. She's making a shambles of shambles. <laughs> 
<laughs> really, really bad at it. And uh, this is the chapter where she's doing the potion making as well, which is about the only thing that she is good at. And there's and the, the doctrine, doctrine of signatures. Of signatures. Oh, oh, so my God. good. Which is real. It's a real life thing. I mean, there's not really. Though not so literally. Not so literally, no. If only, though. Like, how <laughs> good would that be? That would be amazing. It's not bad for a daisy, you know. It's, it can spell pretty well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I well, really you know, love that. The walnut that may contain nut. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that that made me laugh like way too much. I love or, it, or, it, or it may contain a like finely carved miniaturized scene of ancient clatch. Well, it might. It might. Yeah. You never yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, it, but yeah, no, that was great. I love that so much. Yeah. And that's, I feel like that is a real old school Terry Pratchett joke. Yeah. You know, or or gag rather. That is oh, totally that harkens right. back to like very early just yeah. goofy Pratchett. He planted the seed of that very early on, yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Thank uh, you, Liz. You're welcome. But it is yeah, and also that just that thing of taking something from real world folklore and pushing it yeah. to its like yeah. beyond its logical conclusion into ridiculousness. I really Yeah, yeah I dug that. That is very early Pratchett, I agree. Um, mm. The other thing I really like in this chapter is we meet Petulia Gristle. I love we her. We love Petulia. I particularly, as soon as she showed up on her broomstick, where she only knows how to turn left. She's an like, Abby Turner, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> no. But I know people who are like this with bicycles. They don't like riding a bicycle mainly because they can turn left, but turning right is frightening to them. And I get you it. You have to. You can just go very left. You can go then... very left. Yeah. <laughs> It's, it's true. Three lefts make a what, right. What is right except very left? <laughs> exactly. That's true. Uh, but I just the descriptions of her though I really enjoy. Yeah. Like I think we've all met this person, and I, like I see elements of myself in her <laughs> much more her, so than Tiffany. I was never as uh, confident or angry as, as Tiffany as a yeah. child, but I was very yeah. much a a, a peculiar gristle. <laughs> Oh, no, sheep are great. In fact, I love sheep. Oh, my God. Sorry, yeah. I didn't mean they were bad at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When That thing where they describe how she turns her uh, mind around on a dime, like, to make sure she's nice, but she really means it. I'm like, that was me. Like, that's what I was like. I didn't want to disagree with anybody. And it, it's very annoying to some people. Yeah, I loved her. But she's come to invite Tiffany to the Sabbat, the meeting of the local young witches who call themselves The Circle. I was like, is this going to be like the craft? He's kind of already done that. And it's not really, it's not quite the same because they're not a bunch of goths. They're worse, <laughs> I think, because they're all, they're all, well, they're not, this is the weird thing, right? They're not all apprentices of Mrs. Arwij because only Anna Grandma, I think, yeah. is the only one who's yeah. actually studying with her. But they all kind of have bought into her nonsense and they all have, like, because they've got, I think because multiple yeah. of them have a copy of the book that she's written, right? And they, they're trying to do things her way and they're wearing all the spangly jewellery and the stars and stuff and they think that stuff yeah, is important. and calling, calling the corners and all of that kind of business, like all of the rituals. Yeah, um, writing it down well. like a wizard would in a book. Yeah. Yeah, and it just so flies in the face of everything. Like I think if you've come to this book, as some of us have, like you've read all the other Discworld books and you know what the deal is with witchcraft, yeah. you see these young witches and you're like, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, go be wizards. I mean, it's hard to sort of say. Like, I feel as though even if you're coming at it fresh, there is mm. the sense that it's trying too hard. Yeah. Like, they're tryhards. Mm. Totally. 
so I feel like that sense is there anyway, but certainly if you are used to the Ramtops school of witchcraft, yeah, you know how far from the core of it this kind of behavior, this kind of practice is, yeah. I suppose. And we, I mean, we come back to that in the later in the book, you know, like in yeah. fact, only a few chapters after this is, is when we really get that hammered into us, what it's really all about. I just want to say two things on names. Um, I very much enjoyed the Hyacinth Bucket moment with Mrs. Irwig or Irvage. Arvish. Arvish. And I know this is not what he meant because it's like 10 years too early, but Anagramma like sounds a lot like Instagrammer. And I was kind of like, oh, she really does feel like one of those teenagers who'd be trying yeah. really hard to be an influencer but not succeeding as much yeah. as she wants. Like oh. she'd be using every trendy hashtag in an attempt to try and build a brand. But yeah, it's not working. That's so true. Yeah. I didn't think of that. That's great. Yeah. But like oh, he's wow. ahead of his time. But I was just kind of like, oh, that's just it's too spot on for her character. Like if it was yeah. now, that's mm. yeah, she'd yeah. be. But I mean, taking pictures of all those runes and hashtag ruining them up. Yeah, but I mean, you know, I, Pratchett has such a gift for character names, and I think in this book, like it's really on display. Like all of these young witches have such great names, mm. like uh, Gertruda Tiring, uh, <laughs> Harrietta Bilk. Dimity hubbub. Like, these are just, oh, yeah. this is so great. It's so great. And I, I was looking up a list of their names to make sure I didn't miss any. And I, I get the impression maybe one or two of them, like, surely I think we're going to see, this is not the last we've seen of Anagrammer, but I think maybe one or two of the others will, will pop up again as well. Certainly yeah. Petulia, who is clearly the best one. Yeah. Apart from Tiffany. And I'm so glad that they become friends. This is also such a thing, like, this scene is so, like, we've all had this moment at some point, probably multiple times in our teenage lives. Like, this is such a high school thing where people invite you in or you, you're the new kid invited into a thing and you just say the wrong thing and yeah. everybody laughs at you and you feel miserable. And it's so, and it sucks so bad, like, because we know that this hat is real. Like, we know that if, if, if Granny Weatherwax gives you an invisible hat, you have an invisible hat. Like her headology is <laughs> yes. is yeah. is watertight, but no one else can see it, and they all think it's ridiculous. And it's particularly bad because it could have been her moment of being in with them because they're all quite yeah. impressed that she seems to have met her, even yeah. if they're a bit skeptical. And then she says the thing about the hat, and they're all like, "What hat?" And then she tells them the story, and they're like, "Nah." And she runs back to the cottage and has a big you, cry. You big idiot, baby. And we're like, no. Like, no. Oh, no. And it's upsetting because it takes the hat from her because she can't feel it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. yeah. that's headology. Hmm? Like, yeah, because that's headology. It makes her doubt herself. And so it's gone. You're right. That's a theme as well. Don't think about what you're doing. Otherwise, you can't yeah. do it. Yes. Yeah. Which is why I think she has such trouble with the shamble. Mm. Although I think there's a couple of ways to read that. That is very much how the shambles are set up to work. And it's mm. this weird thing for me. <laughs> like I've read the Discworld books and like they're so much a part of how I think, I guess, that mm. I'm like, I'm not sure if this is a concept that I've come up with myself or if Terry Pratchett has had it somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I feel as though the shambles they seem to be a way to get your mind out of the way and let your like hands and your body work things out for themselves without your mind overthinking it and mm. like getting in the way. Yeah. Um, like similarly, I guess, to how Miss Level functions, her two bodies just kind of work together and do things. 
and I don't think it's that she has to specifically tell one body to do one thing. Like it's just hmm. the body knows how to do it, yeah. whether the mind knows or not. Um, and I feel as though shambles, like they give your hands and your fingers something to do. It's like the and, reverse like, concentrate of that. on. Oh, maybe. It's like the opposite of mindfulness, like mind emptiness. Yeah, or it's like, or your mind is so concentrating on the shambles that you kind of can become open to influences mm. that you wouldn't notice if you were looking specifically for them. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, yeah, like, no, I get it. They're a weird, they're a weird thing because I think even when Mystic is kind of talking about what they are or what they can do, they can focus your magic or they can be used as a curse net. You can kind of use them for a, like they're like a Swiss army knife, as yeah. she essentially says. Not Swiss, obviously, because there is no Switzerland, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. Patch army knife. one of those um, army knife. utility knives, like I think she says. Yeah, yeah. It's like if you think too hard about breathing. No, so, great. yeah, so it's like they're very multifunctional and, yeah, like there's, it's sort of not clear kind of what they do or what their limitations might be. They're a um, almost a conduit for yeah. power rather than power yeah. itself well, or yeah. something powerful, which it's- I think comes back at the end with Granny as well. A magic wand isn't magic because it's magic. A mm. magic wand is magic because the person using it yeah. is magic. Shambles, I think, are a bit the same. Does Granny never makes a shamble? I don't think. Not even in this book, does she? She doesn't really need one. I don't believe so. One of the things I found really interesting is how important they are in this book, where we've never heard of them before, but we've spent lots of time around the witches when potentially it could have been useful. But I think Granny and Nanny are sort of old school uh, and powerful enough. I think because I think both of them are like among the most powerful of witches. They probably don't need one. You know, they can just sort of sense things anyway. Yeah. And Magra is too caught up in the sort of rituals and the, you know, the more new agey stuff like with her Athame and in the crucibles and stuff. And it, she doesn't need one either yeah. because she's doing something different. And then, you know, we don't and really I see any other witches. I feel as though it's probably, although I guess that maybe doesn't play out with Miss Level, but I think she's probably had a pretty... Oh, I don't want to say itinerant. There's a good word for when you are constantly travelling. Um, but it feels like the kind of mm. thing that's useful for a travelling witch. You know mm. what I mean? Because it's just all the stuff you have in your pockets. It's entirely portable. Yeah. It's very much you just make it in the moment, mm. which, yeah, although Miss Level seems to be pretty settled in her cottage now, there's definitely a sense, you know, being with the circus and, you know, having this kind of not entirely always comfortable around other people kind of existence. So I wonder if that's another sort of part of it as well. Maybe like when when Tiffany's first asking about it, she asks like one of them says it's kind of like spectacles, and perhaps with Nanny and Granny, their eyesight is good enough; they don't need yes. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I reckon I reckon that's right. But look, this is why the hats vanish. This is why she steps out of herself to see if she can see it that way. And this is the moment when the Hiver, which has already yeah. sort of got her scent again uh slips inside and gets into her mind such and a creepy way too Oof. i know it's just the the thing that it's like when she's like because she has a little phrase that she says when she does it she's just like see me when she steps outside of herself and then before she can see say me see me not it yeah. says i see you and now we are you <laughs> and you're yeah. like oh no <laughs> this is Oof. a disaster it's so awful 
And Jeannie sees this happening. She does the, the interesting, the great idea that, you know, the Kelders have this sort of access to the memories of oh, other Feagles yes. and yeah. even the memories that they haven't had yet. Had yet. And so she sort of sees across space and time and is like, oh, no, it's got her. This is terrible. And then there's the whole bit where Tiffany wakes up and it's not really Tiffany. And, yeah. But it's written. Sort of is. It sort of is and it sort but, of isn't. And, yeah. And I was really confused. Know what's happening. Because I didn't know. I, I think this is so great because you don't really, you're expecting, oh, you know, it's, it's her body, but it's not her mind. But that's not what it is at all. It's mostly her mind, but there's something else driving it. And yeah, I was expecting yeah. an anamorph situation, but no. No. <laughs> With the little, what are the little slug things yurks. called? The yurks. The yurks. Oh, never read those yurks. books, but I feel like I've learned so much about them through this podcast. But yeah, she's not herself because there's this other thing driving her and she's, being a jerk and saying what she really, really thinks in inverted commas, which is kind of true, but kind of not true. And she can also hear this other voice, like calling out for help and prompting her to remember things that she can't remember. And after she's a real jerk, she takes Miss Level's broomstick and flies off saying to it, I love this bit, she's like, I'm not going to learn you. You're going to learn me. Let's go. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I was like, oh, wow. But her body still vomits. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I will control like, that. Yeah, like yeah. no matter how much she might try. I mean, I don't want to make the joke of what is a very serious book and timely, but um, the body keeps the score of vomiting. <laughs> yes, yes. She heads off on the broom. She doesn't just go anywhere. She goes to uh, Mrs. Earwig's, or as she learns in this chapter, Mrs. Arvidge's uh, cottage to get revenge, more or less, on Anagramma. Uh, for being a jerk and, and making her feel upset. But basically by getting her alone and using this magical power that she has, that Tiffany already has, but doesn't really know how to use yet, the Hiver can tap into it and it uses it to basically torture her. Like, um, it suspends her in the air. It turns the milk that she's drinking briefly into like vinegar or something. I, I and thistles. And thistles. That's right. Um, uh, but then back into milk again when she drops it so that there's no evidence of what she's done. Like it's, like it's using Tiffany's mind, yeah. which would think of all these things, like how to get away with this stuff, and her power. Mm. Yeah, and and basically says to Anagramma, "You're going to help me be popular. Like you're going to help me <laughs> yeah. crack this social stuff because then I'll be safe." And this is, I think, the first indication you get of maybe what the Hiver's motivations are. And I didn't really realize it at the time, but I, thinking back, I'm like, okay, yeah, it wants to be in with the in crowd, wants to be safe and and feel like it's protected. So she makes her go with her to Zack Zack Strong in the Arms, which supply shop, which I just, I love this. I, now, it, Sally, we talked about this the other day. I, I don't, you haven't read the short story, The Sea and Little Fishes. I have not. But Zack Zack Strong in the Arm shows up in that story selling Lucky Charms at the, the witch trial that happens maybe a year or two before this. I'm not, I'm not sure if they specify whether it was the immediately previous one or not. But it was just a delight to see him again <laughs> uh, and to see he's got a whole shop full of witch supplies now, which makes sense since there's now this resurgence of interest in witchcraft and there's all these new young witches coming yes. through uh, and they're picking all the best stuff. And it just it just reminded me of every shop you ever go into in Dungeons and Dragons that has like minor magical trinkets in it because uh, there's literally there's, there's a, a magic item in uh, the current edition of Dungeons and Dragons called a cloak of billowing, which at, you huh. can just at will make billow as if it's got wind blowing it around and it and yep. she basically picks out exactly that cloak uh nice. and the and the really tall hat and the nice dress 
Um, See, whereas it just reminds me of every, like, off-brand tree of life crystal <laughs> emporium in a Ishka. small town I've ever walked into. So, yes. you know, different strokes. But, yes, I do get the point. Oh, look, I, Quite a familiar, a familiar milieu. I grew up near Byron Bay. I, I've tried to block those places out of my memory. Yeah, fair. But, yes, I, that is absolutely also what it is like, except the things there are kind of really magical. Or are they? Because... When they start getting, you know, a bit out of line and, and more or less threatening him and saying, well, you're going to let me buy all this stuff and uh, she doesn't have that much money, so you're going to give me a big discount. He threatens to bring his wizard out, Brian. Yeah. He's not really a wizard. Like, it's kind of revealed that oh, he was at... He was at the university, but he was just, like, studying janitorship or something. Like, yeah. he wasn't actually a wizard. Um, And then there's the horrifying thing where she turns him into a frog. And there's all the leftover Brian. The chapter's called this... A Matter of Brian or something, and it's yeah, so the matter of Brian, gross. Which is such a good pun. Liz, do you, this yeah. Is, oh, yeah. That's why I brought it up. It's so <laughs> good. It's so good. I, it's too much of him left over. I read it, and I got I got the pun. Like I got what it was a pun of, but then we got to the bit where he was turned into the frog, and his literal matter yeah. is drawn up into the ceiling like yeah. a fleshy balloon. I yeah. was like, okay, this is top-notch Pratchett punnery. This is... That is good. That is but good. also just top-notch Pratchett body horror, oh, which so is not gross. something we get very much of. But, um, yeah. yeah. And, like, we know, again, if you've read the Discworld books prior to this, like, we know that magic is a balancing act. Like, yeah. you can't just shrink something or turn it into a different form because where does all the rest of it go? Like, that has come up in the books before. Yeah. But it's like, that's a real, real fucked up demonstration of a principle right there. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And can I just say, like, okay, so he's saying that he's a wizard. Wizards go to university, which is, like, supposed to be intellectual, smart, brain thing. But he did not actually study to be a wizard. His name is Brian. Tiffany brings anagramma into the shop and... It's, you know, it's an anagram of brain. It's just, it's, you know, I'm not articulating this well, yes. but it's just, it's all very beautifully done. The words in this chapter. <sighs> yeah. So yeah. good. So, so good. He's not quite a brain. And, and you know. He's, he's slightly a brain. Yes. Yeah. And he's like a crap, he's like a crap Merlin, which is appropriate to the whole matter of Britain business. So it's like, yeah, it's great. The Matter of Britain is the name given to the collection of medieval writing about the legends and heroes of Great Britain, most famously King Arthur. It's not the only such matter. There's also the Matter of France, which deals with King Charlemagne, and the Matter of Rome, which combined classical mythology with the history of Rome. Each one was basically the medieval equivalent of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But it just, but it, it, and you think, surely it can't get any more horrifying than this. But it will. It absolutely will. No, thank you. Because she goes home, she turns him back into a Brian. Uh, not a Brian, the same Brian. He's <laughs> like, oh, you're or a different is it Brian just now. It's a philosophical thing because, like, once your matter is reassembled, are you the same yeah. person? The no. teleporter problem. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, true, true. If you've been turned into a frog and your guts have been floating in the ceiling, are you the same person? Um, <laughs> but he doesn't even seem to remember it, uh, thankfully. Yes, yeah. I mean, that's that's a trauma response. That's probably pretty normal. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't remember being born. Yeah, yeah, true. But look, uh, she goes home 
Meanwhile, Ms. Level has has met the Feagles. She's drawn them out with promises or threats of not sharing whiskey, which is... I love how (laughs) smart she is about this, even though she's only recently learned that they exist. And they explain to her about the Hiver and what's going on, and she realizes this has happened. But also, they kind of tell her what they've been watching Tiffany do, and she realizes, wait, she knows how to borrow. But she's just stepping out of her own body without putting her mind somewhere else. Yeah. That is not safe. Uh, and she doesn't know how to protect yeah. herself, and this is a disaster. And now this thing is in there. This is this is terrible. But then she comes back, and she's like, "Wait a minute, where did you get the money to buy all this? Hold on, have you stole?" And she's about to yeah. ask her, "Have you stolen Mister Weevil's got?" And then she just turns around and just disintegrates her. It's horrifying, and it's no, it's you know the thing I like about it is he really preserves the horror of it because even when. At the start of the immediately after at the start of the next chapter, Miss Level wakes up because her other body is still alive. It's still horrifying because yeah. we've established this is one person with two bodies, and now part of her is gone. Yeah, I was really impressed at how much I never thought. Oh, but it's fine though because she's still got another body. It was always oh. like this is horrifying. Yeah, and the only people she has there to comfort her are the Fingles. Yeah, <laughs> like. Yeah, they try. Like, like, <laughs> they do. Uh, yeah, she's just I mean, so out of it. She best can't intentions. Them. She doesn't know what they're talking about. So yeah, um, they make new... you a cup of tea while destroying all your crockery. Will that yeah. make you feel better? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But the, and this is like one of the key moments for our new Gonagall, awfully wee Billy Big Chin, who spins this story about goblins and stuff because it's easier for her disoriented mind to understand, which sort of gets her back on side. But she's still sort of a bit out of it. She can't really do anything. But this is when the Feagles decide they've got to enact their plan, which they've previously explained, which is they're going to get into her mind and fight the Hiver in there because they can go anywhere they want. They can go into any world they want. Yeah, with their uh, crawl-step thing. Yeah, I love how they don't really explain how it works. And, in fact, there's even that great footnote that's like, they say something about it, and it's a footnote just says, if anyone understood what this meant, they'd probably understand a lot more about how figures yeah. travel from one place to another. Yeah. And then there's that little extract from the book again, my favourite bit of which is that they don't really explain it, but at the end they're like, yeah, we don't use it to travel around the world because we've got, like, feet for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, this is great. But, yeah, so they're going to go into her mind, which they do by following the horse and kind of figure out that this is their way in is – that she's kept the horse and she's wearing it, even though she's put on all of the fancy stuff she bought at the store by extorting the dwarf, but she's also wearing the horse. And they're like, that's significant. That's like an inn. We'll use that to get into her mind. And they do. And in her mind is this kind of copy of, of the chalk, particularly the, the granny Aikens, um, the little caravan. Thing. Yeah, thank you. I always think of it as a caravan. I don't think that he ever uses that word, Hut. but but it does Hut. have wheels. Yeah, it or does it did have wheels. wheels. It doesn't. It's been burned down. It'll now, go with the sheep. Yeah, yeah. It just made so much sense. Like he'd already spent so much effort talking about how connected she is to the land, even in the first book, and that's kind of the whole resolution of that book. Like her summoning up the power of Granny Aching through the chalk, through the the land under wave. And yeah. using that to expel the Queen of the Fairies. And you're like, okay, this is great. It makes sense. But she's not there. And and I, I again, you know, throughout this book, yeah. I was like, I don't know exactly what's going to happen. It was always not quite 
what I would have thought. And I love that about this. Because yeah. she, she's not there. It's empty. But then they find just a message on the wall, which is something that happens earlier in the book when the Hiver first wakes up in Tiffany's body and it's doing things around the place and it's not getting things right and it's forgetting everything and Tiffany knew about cheese making. Somebody writes on the table some a note about it. Yes. And it's, yes. And it's the real Tiffany trying to, you know, get control of her body back. It was so good. And it, the resolution for this is, is great as well because the Feagles are often so stupid that you, you, you don't want them to have a scene by themselves unless it's just for comic relief. But in this scene, I think they really get there. And I particularly like the way Rob talks to Billy, the new Gonagall, and reassures him because he's, he ha- he's like really young for a Gonagall. He doesn't really know what he's doing. He knows all the stories. And he's like, but I don't really know anything about this, Rob. And Rob's like, well, nobody knows anything about this. So yeah. you've got as good a chance as anyone else. And I don't think this is what Rob anybody says, but no one knows anything about it. But you know how to tell stories. So you, of anyone, a Gonagall's going to have a better chance. Yeah. Because you know how stories work. And how stories work is such a big thing in the Discworld in general, but I think in the Tiffany books in particular. Yeah. Um, Because then when we get to the witch trials and she's fixated on this thing of, okay, I know I have to work out in the stories what is the third wish. When you Mm. get three wishes, what is the third one? It's like, yeah, like the shape of stories is such a key thing. Mm. You want to have a Gonagall there. Even if he knows nothing about it, at least he can tell the story. Mm. And, like, sometimes that's how you work it out. And, I mean, and and he does. You know, he works out that, oh, the, the sun is starting to set. And there's yeah. trees growing at the edge of the chalk where it's supposed to be just, you know, rolling hills with no trees. It's just grassland. This place, which is a safe place, is not safe for too long. Like, we've got to do yeah. something about this now. And then the message is these three things. <laughs> oh, my God. The, that huge paragraph of Rob Anybody describing each of the letters in detail. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. trying to read it. That was so good. Oh, the man. whole paragraph of that is just so indulgent, but it's so good. Yeah. And it also really, like, validates their new Kelda's whole thing because she's yes. the one who's like, you yeah. guys got to read. Because it's the only way this. she can communicate with them. Yeah. So she's there too, like, and she contributes to this. Like, I mean, I know that her brother can read and he's just like, you know, it says this. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just... yeah, it was great. I also love how, again, you know, everything Pratchett does, even when he's making stuff up, you know, he's he's drawing on real things. Like, here's these three things that have very distinct smells and they realize these smell. Okay, we've got to get these smells under our nose. These are things that are going to bring this memory to the forefront of our mind, which is yeah. going to bring the hiver here to this safe place. And this is where we're going to be able to defeat it because this is where she's strongest. Um, so he sends everybody else off and he puts Daft Wally in charge of, of the thieving because he's, it's just constantly, you know, he's just the, he's the comic relief figure in this. I mean, they're all comic relief, but he, he yeah. particularly is the one who always just makes a noise when you're supposed to be quiet or says the dumb thing that gives things away. And, but now he's like, okay, you're in charge because you know how to steal stuff. You got to go and steal a piece of wool, some Jolly Sailor tobacco and some turpentine. And so they go off on the broomstick, which Hamish flies. <laughs> he's at least not really flying, uh, but he manages it anyway. And they do steal those things in some great scenes. There's the little thing where, they they meet some girl and she's like sees fairies. Yeah, there was a grandmother telling the story. <laughs> yeah, it's like oh yeah, they just wanted some turpentine and they were they were kind of jerks. Uh, it was they yeah. smelled weird. It was great. Yeah, and then they dress up as a human again to go into the inn and try and buy some tobacco, 
which means they get into a bar fight and also get a little bit... Well, they, they want to get drunk, so they're having a fight over whether or not they are allowed to get drunk. <laughs> and they kind of... This is seated earlier on when they talk about the fact it's always difficult for them to go into a bar because they don't come out again until they're drunk. Yeah. But then they, they come back and there's the beautiful scene of Billy playing the mouse pipes and playing the really sad song about, you know, people who betrayed the sacred oath of their clan, the, the mission that they were on, and telling them that he's ashamed yeah. to be part of their clan. It's just so great. Oh, I loved it. Well, and rob anybody's under a geese. He is. You can't argue with a man under a geese. <laughs> They're a big bird. A very naughty geese. Oh, dear. But And it works. The plan works. They make her smell the things and the hiver comes to the caravan. Uh, the other feagles come back in. They all fight the hiver off for a while, but Tiffany doesn't show until at the very last minute. It's revealed that in her mind she is the Shawklands and she sort of like the hills rise up and it's her and she squashes it, which is metaphorically her like chucking it out of her brain. And I just, yeah, I can't, I love that whole thing. It was great. And then I was like, what the fuck's going to happen for the rest of the book? We're like halfway yeah. through and I was yes. like, but they've done the thing. I was like, I was, like what, what now? <laughs> yeah. I, I and indeed. Oh, oh, but what a what now, Liz. Yeah. yeah. So much to come. Yeah, and then it was really good, but I was like, where do you go from here? Like, you, the main plot point is done, isn't it? No, as it turns out. But, yeah, I was, I thought that, but then as I kept reading, I was like, oh, of course. Yeah, it can't be killed. We've established this. Yeah. So, just because it's, it, so what have you done? You've just, you've just chucked it out. Uh, it's still here. And also, you've got to get your own mind back in order, which is the next chapter where she's not named immediately, but we all are quite sure we know who it is because Granny Weatherwax has sensed this happening in a previous paragraph or two, and now she's there helping Tiffany to sort of get her mind back in order to stop thinking all these thoughts that are coming from the echoes of the memories of the people that the Hiver has been yeah. in the past. Which Including I, the wizard that I thought we weren't going to see again. Yeah, so yeah. I love that he came back and he, he just won't shut up. <laughs> it's great. Just do the work, Tiffany. Milk the goats, Tiffany. Like, just, just saying the person's name. Over and over. Telling them to do the things that you know they know how to do. Like, yeah, it was yeah. great. Not only that. I love the goats too. Oh, like, yeah, especially Defiant Meg. Yeah. <laughs> that line about, what is that? A goat is unsettling when you're used to sheep or something. Like, yeah. Because yeah. a goat is a sheep with brains. Because a goat's a sheep with brains. It looks at you and it knows. Yeah, yeah. Just I, imagine her putting her hoof in the... In the milk after all that, just as a yeah. power move. It's just, yeah. 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 Jerks. Yeah. Just eye contact. Just the whole way through. With those weird eyes that they creepy have. Creepy eyes. Oh, creepy yeah. pupils. Love it. Love it. But not only is Granny helping Tiffany get back into her right mind, but she also needs to help Miss Level, who has into got... one body. Yeah. yeah. And she's got, like, the equivalent of sort of phantom limb syndrome, except with a whole other body, which she can absolutely control as this sort of psychic force, more or less. But it's a bit out of control and not quite right, and she still doesn't feel great. She's starting to get used to it, like, by doing, you know, making the tea with her physical hands, but also there's two other hands, like, carrying things and moving things yeah. around and nearly dropping things. She needs a bit of a rest to recover from being half physically killed. killed um and so granny's like all right well don't worry make a list we'll sort things out while you have a bit of a rest and as she's going through the list there's this great bit where tiffany is like just dreading when she's going to say a certain name of someone that they have to go and help yeah but she doesn't say it and uh granny just takes her off 
also, I love the end of this chapter where Granny has the great speech. I mean, the chapter's called Soul and Center, and this is, you know, where Granny has the speech about what is the soul and center and heart of witchcraft, which is yeah. basically just helping people even though they would never help you or they would never say thank you, but you've yeah. got to do it because it's the right thing, and that is what witchcraft is about, not all the magic stuff. And yeah. Like, yeah. And she's so emphatic and angry about it. And then she complains about Mrs. Earwig and how shit she is. And that's really like the sea and little fishes. It really sets up this rivalry and how much bad blood there is between the two of them. But you don't really need it to get it on this level because we already know that Mrs. Earwig just does not get it. But it's also like, it's interesting because Miss Earwig's clearly written that book and she's mm. influencing this younger generation of witches, including Anna Grammer, who's like the worst of all of them. Mm. And she even has a line about how wizard magic is proper magic. Like wizards are the ones who do real magic and witches don't. Oh. And it's just this whole thing about the internalized misogyny of it all. It's <laughs> just, yeah. Yep. yeah, it's like, oh yeah. We gotta be more like men if we want to be taken seriously, not like we have to be the best that we can be on our own. Like it's just yeah. it's aspiring to something that's not actually even true. Because like we've seen wizards and they're they're quite shit. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty shit. And it's yeah. like it's like flying in the face of everything that happens in equal rights as well, you know? It's just terrible. It's depressing. Yeah. For every step we take forward take steps back as well yeah but you know that's not all granny's got to say she's also reminding tiffany that the hiver is still out there and it's our responsibility to do something about it as well as fixing the things she did while the hiver was driving her body around or she could skive off the hive off (laughs) it's bad it's bad no it's fine um there's a nice bit right at the start with miss tick and miss tick's like little um teachings um, always face what you fear, have just enough money, never too much, and some string. Even mm-hmm. if it's not your fault, it's your responsibility, which yeah. is deal with things. Yeah, mm-hmm. I love that. Um, et cetera. And, like, they're all great. Like, they're all great. Miss Tick's little teachings, whatever you might think of Miss Tick, um, there's some solid teachings yeah. amongst all of that. Yeah. But, yeah, like... Even if it's not your fault, it's your responsibility. The Hiver found her, but she didn't summon it. She didn't conjure it. She didn't make it. She didn't call it. Mm. She just happened to be what it was looking for, but not out of her own like, yeah. malice or real intention. Mm. I mean, but it's misfortune. It's not her fault. No. But it is her responsibility. It's interesting, though, also, because I think that it's slightly contradicted by the way that she keeps reminding herself that it wasn't me, but at the same time it kind of was me. Like there's that idea that it only did things that she thought of doing but then thought better of. Yeah, true. Yeah, so the Hiver being there isn't her fault. No, but But the things it did. The things that the Hiver did as her, they do have. Uncomfortable realisations about yourself. Yeah, hell yeah. And it's that thing, you know, you can be, you can really beat yourself up for things that you've thought about but not done. And that's kind of what this is like, you know, if you've ever felt that, this is like your worst nightmare where like all those things you've thought about and not done is like, but also you did do them. (laughs) Like, no. Choosing not to do them is, is the main thing. Yeah. And I think it's a tweet or a meme of some kind, but it's something that has stuck with me in the past few years that I read somewhere on the internet around 
your first reaction to something or someone is the prejudices you have learned, but it is your second, like it is what you think about it and do about it that reflects um, the values that you are choosing for yourself. It's something along those lines. Mm. Um, and the hiver is definitely that whole, like it latches onto your first most kind of reactive response mm. to things. Like it's quite primitive in that kind of way. Yeah, and that's kind mm. of going back to the idea of first, second and third thoughts that is yeah. so central to these first couple of Tiffany books. Yeah, which I thought was great. So great. Mm. And this next chapter, The Late Bloomer, is where Tiffany has to face up to the consequences of some of those first thoughts and first reactions, which is yeah. to think that Mr. Weevil's kind of like, he's old, he's going to die anyway. Why are we looking after him? Shouldn't we just let him die and use his money for something useful? And this is why the Hiver has come up with the plan of stealing his money. So she's dreading going in there, but she does. And I like the way that Pratchett finds a way for this to have a happy ending without her being let off the hook because mm. she goes to open the box to show him that it's empty and tell the truth, but then finds that the Feagles have already been there and filled it with the gold. Yeah. But then she still says... Tells the truth. But look, yeah. this is yeah. obviously not your money, and I've got to tell you this is my fault, and she just tells him the whole story, and he's like, okay, now help me get on a wedding suit so I can go and ask this widow yeah. to marry me. <laughs> and he just he just doesn't phase him. He's just like... As far as I can tell, I'm better off, even if you did something wrong. And it doesn't sound like yeah. it was entirely your fault anyway. And she she kind of does get away with it, but only because she's honest about it and tries to do the right thing. Yeah. And I think yeah. that's Yeah, she owns nice up ending. to it. Yeah, and it's just delightful. <laughs> yeah, because she could have gotten away with not telling him and it would have yeah, been fine. Right. Yeah. But yeah, she, but she, she chose to come clean. She did the right thing, Yeah, even when it was hard. And then he gets to marry. The, he's just, it's oh, lovely. So he's I've just done it so much, but there's step. so many good moments. Yeah, there really are. But I like that this chapter kind of balances that out because you've got this sort of moment of everything's worked out and it's joyous, but there's still hard yards to do. We've got to yeah. go up the hill, get away from everyone. And it's clear to Tiffany that part of Granny's plan is she says, I'm coming with you to help you. She's kind of like, you're going to use me as bait, aren't you, to lure it out? And then we're going to deal with it somehow. I don't know. But she realizes yeah. while Granny's sort of borrowing an owl to watch out over the area that it's actually, it's not going to come near because Tiffany was scared of Granny. She knows how powerful she is. And that means the hiver knows as well. And it's not having a bar of it. It's not going to come. Um, yeah. So like, well, I don't know what we're going to do then. And that's when Petulia shows up. And I love that Petulia shows up to say, are you okay? And Tiffany mm -hmm. has that first thought of, what would you do if we weren't? And then has the second thought, well, well, you would stand in the way of the thing because you're actually a proper witch. Like, he, yeah. she gives her <laughs> yeah. her dues. A like, witch and a good person. Yeah. <laughs> like. You, you know, you would be scared and your magical charms would be useless, but you would do but it anyway. But you'd do it anyway. Um, and it just made me love her even more because it's the day of the witch trials. And they're like, okay, well, if the hive is not going to come to us here, we might as well go to the witch trials. Because uh, there's no way Granny Weatherwax is going to miss him. And so they go. The wizard bustle won't shut up about Hiver's stuff. But also this is when she starts to have that thought in her head. that She's like, well, I can kind of, I've got this thought on the edge of my head that I kind of understand what we've got to do. We've got to figure out what the third wish is all about. And um, she doesn't really ask Granny about it because she hasn't really figured out what that means yet. But they head down to the witch trials it's like a big fair. It's a fate, and it's kind of getting a bit out of control. 
<laughs> like, I like how Granny's like, it used to be just witches here, and now it's like just as everybody comes. No, with all caps, and a good day out for the family. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, so weird. But then again, I mean, probably every country show and fair, mm. you know, it started out being the Countrywomen's Association baking competition. Yeah. Or the, or the sheepdog Let's trials. give an award to the best cows. Yeah. Like, yeah. biggest thing. Pumpkins. And then suddenly it's some bumper cars and show bags, and it's all mm-hmm. like just a fun day out for the whole family. And a lucky like, dip. Yeah. You've got to do something to entertain the kids because they yeah. don't care about this stuff anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I like that those shows that still preserve that sort of wholesome, let's show off everybody's talents kind of angle. And they have still have like drawing competitions and best jam making and all that stuff. I love mm. it. Oh, so good. Um, but yeah, when they're there, uh, Tiffany thinks it's going to be a safe place for them to go because it'll be full of witches. But when they arrive, she realizes it's not just full of witches. There's just regular people and kids there as well. And that's not a safe place for the hybrid to show up. Um, and so she's not really sure what she's going to do. And she starts panicking because the hive is coming. Now, I, I kind of lost track of this when I was rethinking about this. What, why is it coming to the, is it, is it still coming to try and get Tiffany or is there some other reason why it's attracted to the witch trials? It's going to find another witch, basically. Someone it's going to get into yeah. who's got power. I wasn't 100% I didn't quite sure of that. I that either. Yeah. I mean, it works. And I think eventually it's kind of lured in by Tiffany, but it's, I didn't fully grok that, I don't think. But it it, it yeah. didn't matter too much. Like, it still kind of made sense to me because Tiffany's trying to figure out the thing with the wish. She asks, um, and as the hiver sort of shows up, the other witches sense it's there and they're like, hang on a minute. Um, and they don't realize, they don't know what it is because witches don't really know what hivers are. Like, they're not part of witch law. The granny and, and this level only really know because the fegals have told them. So they're like, okay, nobody else knows what this thing is. They don't realize it's unkillable and basically immune to magics and stuff, what are we going to do? And then after asking Anna Grammer, who gives a crap answer from memory, um, she asks Granny, what's the third wish? And she says, well, in any story worth the telling, it's the wish that undoes the harm the other two wishes have already done. I was thinking about this the whole time, because I am a very amateur, I stress this, amateur student of folklore, and I was thinking, well, which version of the three wishes story is it going to be? Like, you know, is it the wish that sets the wish giver free? Or is it the, you know, this thing or is it that thing? <laughs> yeah. And it's the fisherman's wife story. It's the talking fish wish story mm. is the kind of classic version of this where, you know, the fisherman catches this fish that can talk and he asks it for a wish and he wishes for something bigger and then his wife hassles him to wish for something more impressive and it doesn't work out the way they want it and eventually he wishes that he'd never made any wishes at all and everything goes back to normal. And then, the, But there's also another one where they get wishes and somebody wishes he your nose was a sausage or something. There's some weird version what? of it like that. I think it's a Russian version of the same story, but there's there's one where they get three wishes and they just get into a fight over what the wishes should be and they accidentally wish like these horrible things to each other and then they have to use the last wish to undo them. So it's it, it's an archetypal kind of story, but I wasn't sure if that was where... It, I, I didn't know which way it was going because there's other ones it could have been, yeah. but I like that it's this one. Granny's like, you've got to face the hiver. You do it. It's You know, it's here because of you. You need to make this right. Um, and so she's trying to make a shamble to focus some of her power through. She still can't do it. The egg, she drops the egg. She's previously told the Fiegels to stay away as they go up the hill to deal with this. But at this point, Rob Fiegel drops off a buzzard from out of the sky and says, put me in your shamble. I'll be the living part of it. And she's like, but I explode them all. He's like, nah, it'll be fine. 
and she uses him to make a shamble and it works and she's able to call on the whole power of the chalk once again and some people swear they see like a magical horse shape like flying through the sky and there's all this sparkly stuff and the hiver is kind of kind of trapped in this tangle of stuff and becomes sort of weirdly visible and I, I thought the the visual of that was really cool like this sort of weird refracted cloud of faces of all its yeah all its hosts yeah i thought that was really cool i could really imagine it you know sort of all shimmery and pearlescent and weird and speaking in this kind of cacophony of voices all at once and she just talks to it what's your deal yeah um and realizes that it's like you're safe here like and that's what it wants you know it doesn't feel safe and i love the conversation goes all these weird places but it kind of reveals that the way the hiver sees the world is just endless things, just thoughts and ideas. And you can just look at a tree, but when I look at a tree, I see, you know, when we, because it speaks in the yeah. plural, when we look at a tree, we see everything about the tree and everything it's ever been and everything anyone's ever thought about it. And it's it's overwhelming and we hate it. And we need to get away from all that stuff and be safe. How are we going to make you safe? They kind of come to the conclusion that it's like, well, can you show me how to die? <laughs> like, that sounds like it would be quiet there. And I, I think this is one of the first times, I certainly don't think we've read any other of his books where somebody wanting to die is kind of a big part of the, the plot. Mm-hmm. But I think, I, oh, maybe, no, I there is another say, one. We haven't done, I was going to say, we haven't done Thief of Time yet, have we? No. No. Yeah. No. Um, so I don't think we've read any of the other ones. I, I think there was yeah. one where someone... There's a couple of ones where, you know, like, I think in Mort, like, the witch is going to die is like, it's fine, like, it's, I'm ready. Yeah. And I think yeah. there's one other one where someone says, no, I'm, I'm cool with it, it's time, it's not a problem. Um, but this is a bit different where a thing that cannot die is like, well, yeah. can you show me how to do it? Because then I'll be somewhere where yeah. I don't have all this stuff happening to me. And, yeah. and it's like, okay. I don't understand what this <laughs> is, but it sounds like what I want. Yeah. As opposed to, you know, it's sort of an existential question, you know, as a as a human. Mm. But for something that just doesn't even understand, like, its existence is so different from ours, it doesn't even have a concept of what dying is. But it's yeah. like, yeah, I think that's, I think that's the solution yeah. to my problems. I think that's what I want. And like, yeah, you yeah. had a long life. Yeah, and because it can't die in the normal way. She uses this magic that she's summoned to open a door into, well, the Black Desert that has become the sort of weird interim spot for all characters who die on the Discworld. And I always, I, I mean, we talked about this, I think, in a, one of our previous episodes, but I, I kind of, I think, in fact, I think Steph brought it up when we were talking about the truth that it has become this kind of default, even though what happens when you die in the Discworld is whatever you believe is going to happen to you. But when Mr. Pin and Mr. Tulip die, Mr. You know, one of them doesn't really believe anything and the other one believes but doesn't believe in something and they still end up in this same desert. And now the Hiver, which can't die, doesn't have any beliefs about what happens next. It ends up in the desert too because that's where Tiffany takes it. And Tiffany doesn't know that's where the door goes. Nobody does (laughs) because it doesn't seem like anybody's religions except maybe I think the Omnian religion maybe does have a concept of this. Yeah. But everybody else, it's just sort of, it seems to be the default thing that you do. But it yeah. makes sense but that it'd be full of sand. Kind of no. Right? Like, mm-hmm. it makes sense that it's full of sand because there's like, because um, of lifetimers being full of sand. So, oh, like, yeah. the death mm-hmm. desert 
being made of sand makes a kind of poetic sense. Yeah. Like the default one. But what were you saying about the witches? I was saying, well, it's the witches, it seems they at least kind of know. Granny definitely has an idea and mm. don't know which book it's in. Which um, book? <laughs> <laughs> um, where I think she goes, she walks the desert. Oh. Um, either with someone or anyway, again, it could be yeah, one no. of the later Tiffany books I might be oh, maybe. projecting. But also we get in this one, like once this is all done and dusted and Tiffany comes back to the real world and everyone's like, you weren't in a desert. Like you didn't go anywhere. invisible hat girl thinks she's in a desert. Yeah. Uh, did you see the fairies there? Oh. Yeah. yeah. Like there was some sparkly and, and stuff, is but like, whatever. Shut the hell up, Anagramma. Like we all know that when someone is dying, you sit with them and like you're trying to guide them to another place. Like so, there's a sense that they kind of mm. witches in particular because they exist on that edge of passing into the next life, like helping people pass. Like mm. maybe they don't know that the desert is there necessarily, unless you know you're quite powerful, like Granny. But they have that inkling, that intimation of like. Yeah, there is, there is somewhere just one step beyond life. Yeah, totally. And we know it and stop. Like, I think that's, again, one of the great things about Pachulia is it's like she has sat with a dying person mm-hmm. as part of her kind of not apprenticeship or whatever she's doing, whatever we call it. Mm. And a grammar, if you don't know this, you Either you're pretending and you're being a jerk yeah. or you don't know it and you are a big phony. And a jerk. <laughs> Sit the hell down. Yeah. Like. Yeah. And yeah. And just, yeah, Patchouli is just the best. It's very satisfying. She is the so best. So satisfying. Totally And it's best. always satisfying when it's the mousy one who does it. Yeah. Like, mm. we always love some comeuppance from, like, the the one who just says um a lot and always gets told that what she's been doing is wrong Yeah, by the cool girl, and then she's like, no. No, you shut you up. You know what? You can go and eat shit. Yeah. Yeah, it's very satisfying. Um, yeah. So, that was great. And as is, like, I've got to admit, I don't know. Speaking of things, whether they're satisfying or not. So, what happens what, once Tiffany leads the Hiver into the world beyond... The black desert. She she leaves it there. Or, well, she doesn't just leave it there. She sort of helps it come to grips with what it needs to do, giving it a bit of an identity by giving it a name and explaining what it was missing, like the sort of the way that it works, and and telling it some stories about how humans came to be that sort of give it something to to hang on to, and naming it, giving it the name Arthur, which I thought was very cute. And so it goes off across the desert to go, okay, well, I'll go and figure out what I've got to do It's going to go have an Arthur life. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. All right. I'll pay that. But Same. heads off. Um, and then she's stuck because, as Death says, that was a door in and you can't go out the door in. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's very important. Got to find the egress. So she's... <laughs> Yeah, so she's stuck there, and I was well, sort of little thinking, heron. I don't know how she's going to get out. Like, I knew that Rob, mm. who's with her, can get out of anywhere, but he can't yeah. take other people with him. So, what's she going to do? And I was, I was kind of, I wasn't, sh- and I don't know if I feel like, I, I kind of feel it is satisfying that she doesn't have all the answers and she doesn't figure it out herself. And Granny kind of pulls her out. Granny ex machina, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Because there's a little bit of in both these books where Tiffany calls on this vast power that's kind of her birthright through her granny and, and their connection to the land. But she's she hasn't really earned it or learned how to do it yeah. properly yeah. yet. So I think if she also figured out all of her problems using it, a bit like she does in the first book, again, it would feel yeah. a bit like a cheat. But I think I think in the first one I was okay with it. I was like, yeah, okay. Like it's a it's a bit It's a fluke. It's a bit of a fluke. It's fine. Yeah. It's it's the thing that happens when you first unleash the power. It it you know, it's it's very powerful. Now it's like, yeah. well, I've got a bit more control, but I don't really know what I'm doing. And now I'm stuck yeah. in the world of the dead. Uh, yeah. and someone has to bring her out. And it's great. And I think again, it's um it's being a kid. It's being an eleven year old. It's like I mean, possibly a bit old for like learning to swim kind of metaphors, but it is like there are skills that you are developing, but sometimes someone has to come in and help you get out of the pool or whatever it might be. Yeah. Like you just can't do everything. And I think it's also as much as Granny is a bit of a like lone wolf in a lot of ways, but witchcraft is all about depending on and relying upon your sistren. Yeah. <laughs> your, um, yeah, your fellow witches. And and the other people around you too. Like, I mean, yeah. that's what Miss well, yeah. teaches her. Absolutely. Is, you know, you don't like, get paid, but it all kind of works out in the end that you have enough to eat and you have enough to work yeah. um, with because of all the things that you do. And you give a lot of it away, but you always end up with enough for yourself. And it's, yeah. Yeah. I agree also, like what you were saying like she's a literal child and it's kind of a good message to be like you don't have to work it all out on yourself it's okay to yeah. ask for help and it's okay yeah. for people to come in and teach you things it's not like the like there's a lot of classic stories where the kids just flounder around and figure it out which is not realistic so mm. yeah i think it is good to have a heroine that accepts help and sometimes needs help yeah yeah and there's a and you know from from another woman too, which is yeah. important. Like if it was a dude that was helping her out, you'd be like, "No, nah, come on." Oh, if it was fucking, fucking Roland, Roland. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Flip the book, wouldn't you? But look, we I think we can get to the end of the book here pretty quickly. Tiffany gets brought back out. Petulia mm. stands up to Anagramma and says, "No, they have the witch trials, and yeah. and kind of nobody wants to do anything because Tiffany's already done this weird thing, and no one's really quite sure what it is yeah. that she's yeah. done." But and Granny's, like it wasn't really a trick. Yeah. And she wasn't really competing. And Granny's or sitting was, there. Or was it like Granny's trick? Yeah. I, I really? Know. And like everyone's like, and then like Petulia gets up and does the pig trick, but without a pig? I'm going to do it on a sausage. Amazing. <laughs> and like we no, we have no idea what the pig trick is. Um, I mean, surely this is She a does it on a sausage though. Surely this is a yeah. reference to Willow, the film Willow. I have not seen the film Willow. No, Neither have okay, I. Well, I will not spoil this for you, but I will say that a pig trick Uh-oh. is involved okay. in that film. Uh, but it's not really. It's probably not a reference to Willow. I mean, it might be. I don't know. But I like that she gets up and does the trick and that Miss Level does her juggling with two bodies while only one body physically exists. And while people are quite, they like those tricks. They like Miss Level's juggling. They like the pig trick that Petulia does. Nobody really wants to compete <laughs> apart from them. Uh, and there doesn't really seem to be a winner. Um, everyone just sort of goes, okay, but there's this sort of understanding that maybe Granny's won by default. Uh, and a few people try to persuade 
um, Tiffany that she should do something because I think you might win. You can do something really cool. Uh, but she's like, no, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. And I, yeah, like winning I've, already, is the, I've already done my thing. Like I've had the recognition that matters. Yeah. Mm. And like, and yeah, and while Tiffany's in the death desert, Granny puts her hat on Tiffany, like her real hat. Oh, mm. yeah. So like, yeah, like you sort of, like Tiffany doesn't realise until she like wakes up and the other girls in the circle are like, she put, like she gave you her hat. Like, mm. like, mm. oh, my God. Um, she redeemed from that social faux pas, which was not a faux pas. But. Yeah. 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 Um, like, you have an actual hat and, yeah, becomes that thing that, um, like, yeah, she then has to, like, she visits Granny and has to return the hat because she's like, I think I need to find my own hat. Like, like, thank you. Mm. And then we have that Leonardo DiCaprio pointing at the screen moment where she talks about the title. Because <laughs> she's yeah. a hat full of sky. Yeah, but doesn't yeah. she like? She gives her her old hat and says, "You hang on to it until like you get your own one." Because I'm making my own one hat. every year. I'll, I'll have another hat. Don't worry about it. Um, so I, I think there's a there's. It's just a nice sort of but like. Yes, but yeah, wear this. It's temporary. You'll get your own hat. Yeah. But also, yeah, I like don't you, need, you need it to back have because your own hat. I'm making my own one. Yeah, so it's like yeah. a interim hat, which I thought was quite nice. Your training yeah. hat. It's your hand me down. Yeah. Because the individual hats don't seem that important in a lot of ways. Like, they, all the witches have their own hat style, but they're constantly buying new hats and making new ones. Like, uh, Nanny's got the one with the like the flask and the tip uh, at one point. Well, I think, is- you know, especially as a senior witch, you probably get, uh, like, you're wearing them all the time. That's true. You go through a few, through you? Through thick and thin. Yeah. If a house drops on you, you need a new one, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. 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 Or um, you don't if you buy the, the really oh, strong true. one from, like, from yeah, the Yeah, with the reinforced, yeah. reinforced tip. Yeah, yeah, yeah that'd do it. Um, uh, but, yeah, the, when she goes back home, I just I wasn't expecting this from this book because, like, knowing there's three more to come, I was like, it's, maybe it's too early. But when she goes back home and basically is... I'm a witch, guys. <laughs> like she's wearing the hat while she's doing stuff around the chalk and doing all the, yes, the dairy yeah. stuff and helping people out and just sort of redeeming the idea of a witch in the chalk and, and not even necessarily explicitly saying it, but just being it. I really liked that. That was, that was great. What a great yeah. way to end the book. So yeah, that's, uh, that's a hat full and of like, sky. Yeah, she came back better than she was. Yeah. I've come back better than I went. Yeah, uh, and there's a thing about that in this hardcover. Coming back to where you started is not the same as never leaving. Hmm. And yeah, yeah, it's true. You know, she's been on a journey. It's, I mean, it's you can talk and about again the- such a small town thing. Yeah, because I think there is, I guess, especially as a sort of precocious kid like Tiffany, that sense that you might get stuck there yeah. your whole life and just pulled into that. Yeah, life. Like, I think that's very real. Yeah. Um, but going back there is not the same as never having left at all. Yeah. You can't cross the same river twice. <laughs> you can't cross the same river twice. Yeah. Um, it's a different river. It's a different you. Like, you're crossing it differently. For sure. Yeah. Just like Brian is a different Brian. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, no. Well, look, we've got some great questions, which we'll get into. But before we get to that, are there any bits that we haven't covered or any favorite things that you want to read out 
Because, I mean, just, there's so many good bits in this book. I laughed a lot. Yeah. Just a quick shout-out to um, the Feagles having a bath and loving it. <laughs> that was great. That was very yeah. cute. I just want to say I'm pretty sure this book contains the only that I've spotted in all of Pratchett so far, Secret of Monkey Island reference, where uh, the um, the, oh, yeah. the acrobats in the circus that Miss Level used to go to are the Pastrami brothers who give themselves that name because they think people will think they're more impressive if they uh, if they sound like they're, they're from somewhere else. And in the exact same way, there's a circus that you visit in the original Secret of Monkey Island game where there's the amazing flying Fettuccini brothers who fire themselves out of a cannon. And they are not really called Fettuccini either. I'm sure that that's a name. I'm sure there's a gag in there where they've made that name up for themselves. I'm pretty sure he would have played it. Uh, so I think that might be a little a little sneaky reference. Or it could just be the same joke from two different writers. Who knows? But I'm going to choose to believe it's a reference. That one passed me by. Yeah. <laughs> Wow. (laughs) Did it meet your expectations? Uh, No. No, Mm. it did not. Uh, (laughs) uh, I I cannot. I mean, I can only make this joke because we were talking about nuts earlier. No, it exceeded them. (laughs) (laughs) Something about legumes. But that's a stretch. Oh, God. Everything's a stretch. Stretch pasta. Um,. I'd oh, like can't to cash you out. While we're speaking of stretching, I'm going to give a shout out to the King's Legs Inn. Uh, we'll stretch those legs because I just thought that was very funny <laughs> that someone's like, oh, there's lots of King's Arms and King's Heads, but there's no King's Legs. So I've spotted a gap in the market. Yeah. Uh, that was, and I thought it was, that Gotta was Gotta have your point of difference when you're, uh, when exactly. you're developing business. It's a crowded ye oldie inn market, you know? But I, I also liked that it was just parenthetical rather than as a footnote, which I thought was an interesting choice, but I thought was the right one for that moment. I liked that. I liked the line, the hybrid looks like Tiffany, although here it was slightly taller because Tiffany thought she was slightly taller than she really was. And <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, that's just such a great yeah. insight into someone's mind because, uh, yeah. That was great. Yeah, I liked that too. Um Oh, there's that great bit at the start. They, I think this is in the original book too, but where uh, right at the beginning she's talking about the Feagles and the things that they do, and the, it, he talks about the Feagle way of granting wishes. <laughs> Which is, you know, if you wish you had a knife, they'll steal a knife. <laughs> yeah. But uh, don't wish for other things because they'll grant them in ways that will be violent and, and thiefy. Yeah. Oh, and Granny asking about what's gravitars. <laughs> <laughs> Dignity. Uh, Wisdom. The cloak cloak gives you a certain gravitas. (laughs) What's gravitas? It's charming. It's great. So good. I mean, Granny's whole soul and center speech is amazing. I don't don't want to read it out because I kind of just want to hear some of the great actors of the age performing it because it's such a great speech. But I also, I love the bit, and this will come up in the questions, but I love the bit where they're talking about the Rattles family and they've got their privy too close to their well and so they're they're fouling their water. They didn't do anything about it when Miss Level painstakingly explains that there's little things that live in the privy that if they get into the water, they'll get into you and then they'll make you sick. But when Granny tells them a story about there's a goblin that likes to, you know, mess up your water because of this, uh, they do it immediately and... Tiffany is outraged by this because she knows that the germ theory is correct, but uh, Granny is much more pragmatic and is like, no, just tell them a story that they'll 
that they understand. That they understand and they'll and do appreciate, it. Appreciate, yeah. Which is what she does to the hive relator in the, you know, yeah. in the Death Valley. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, so I really like that. Um, and just mm. there's one, there's so many things. I don't want to read any out. There's just one, one of the other things that I really <laughs> enjoyed. Just a little moment with Granny, like where you just get an idea of what she's like to other people when she's, it's not her story. Like there's the bit where uh, she's been doing the rounds with Tiffany and there's a bee in her ear and then she just says, oh, yeah, and you need to tell Miss Level about this because she's just yeah. getting the goss from the bees about what's important. And yeah. Then, and then there's another bit where they're going up into the mountains where Tiffany's like, do you come, if you come up here all the time? He's like, yeah, but isn't it dangerous? Aren't there like wolves and trolls and things? Don't they attack you? And she's like, with a self-satisfied look on her face, not anymore. <laughs> oh, it's so great with a wax in a nutshell. So good. Oh, I would love a short story of just that. <laughs> just the first time she gets attacked by trolls. Yeah, that would yeah. be amazing. Oh. First and last time. Um, oh, you, I, there's only one other thing I will briefly read out, and then we should, uh, and then if you've got any, we should get to those, and then and then get onto questions. But I loved the names of the books at Unseen University that are footnoted, um, oh, that are in the, the faux Latin. Latin. Yeah, because there's the uh, the res centum et una cosmagis. I can't pronounce Latin, but it's fake Latin anyway. But it's uh, it translates to one hundred and one things a wizard can do. <laughs> <laughs> That was great. Uh, and the monster book. And is it the monster monsters. book of monsters yeah, as well yeah. in this Which is also in Harry Potter. Yeah. Liber Eminus Monstorum. I'm not sure which one came first. We'd have to look that up. But, uh, you know, it's a it's kind of an obvious joke to make, I guess, in some ways. But it's still very satisfying. And at because least this, this one's was 2004, and that was the fourth Harry Potter. Um, so mm-hmm. that was... Around the same time, I think. Yeah, roughly 2002, three. So, but they could have been writing them at the same time. Just a yeah. coincidence. It's a good joke anyway. I'm happy to yeah. see it twice. I think it's interesting. The whole thing about wizardry and writing things down in books and mm. even being like a research witch, I think even maybe Magrat is quite like she's quite comfortable with writing things down and journaling and that kind of thing or having a diary. Yeah. Um, Tiffany definitely is as well. And, like, by the end of the book, she's, like, she has so much more to write in her diary because it used to be just, like, writing about making cheese every day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, like, Friday the 23rd, Roland showed up when I was out on a walk again. Dear diary. Vomiting. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Granny and Nanny are not literate types by any means. Like, Nanny starts writing you know, banana daiquiri and, like, just gets stuck in the word banana. <laughs> it's like banana and doesn't know when to stop. Like, yeah. that's where we're at. Um, and then the Feagles learning how to write as well and, like, this whole idea of, like, it goes on saying a man's words even after he's dead. Like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's that. Yeah, <laughs> like, that idea. Yeah. It's a nice kind of callback that, you know, in the first book, this clan of Feagles is so dead against anything being written down. But yeah. when you first meet the Feagles, the other clan in Carpe Yogulum, they've got stuff written down already. Yeah. And you're like, oh, yeah. okay, well, they're, they're de-. and then this kind of marries them together. And it's like, oh, yeah, well, one clan likes to write things down. The other clan's scared of it. It's all fine. Yeah. Well, I mean, they're scared of the legal implications. Yes. Mm. yes. I believe as much as anything else. That's true. But it is, I mean, I think it is, 
you know, even in our world, you know, writing is a magical thing. Yes. Like, it is an arcane thing, really. Very definitely. But, yeah, like, I love all of that. And even, you know, if you think about the horse or, you know, the stone circles and, like, earthworks and, like, underground burials, like, it's all about, like, these different types of inscribing history on something Mm. in a lot of ways or retaining things. Yeah. There is one thing I wanted to mention that I feel like should be mentioned that we haven't. Yeah. Henry the horse, who finally gets to live his dream of beating the coach and will not stop running. I just, that was another brilliant moment. Like just a tiny scene that I just thought made this, like just one of those things that elevated this book. It was just the best. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Good old Henry. He was great. I loved him. I loved him. That was awesome. But we should do some questions. Yeah, so this one comes from Luke Jimenez via Facebook. At which point in a hatful of sky did the witch trials pun click for you? I didn't get it until the <laughs> epilogue. <laughs> it's established in uh, The Sea and Little Fishes, mm. which we read before this. So I, I kind of got it. But it's just it's just such a beautiful, yeah, beautiful I inversion. Mean, I don't know if I ever... Like, I don't think I ever thought of it as a pun because I don't really think of it as funny. <laughs> but I like, I'm always like, oh yeah, witch trials, witch trials, witch trials. <laughs> like, I understood the reference, though I never thought of it as a pun. Is it a double entendre, kind of? But you know, yeah, I don't think it, it was always in my head of like, yeah. And that is, um, again, not to spoilerify, but the trying of witches. And witch finding will come up in later Tiffany books as well. Mm. Yep. Uh, and this is another one. Granny Weatherwax has been described since Equal Rights as a powerful figure who is beginning to feel her age. Carpe Jugulum has a lot more images of Granny being tired and weak, partially for the show, but also not. With every appearance from here on in, she's more and more open about her fatigue and slipping power. Do you think this is Terry grasping with his own age, mortality, and slipping health? It's an interesting question because I there's the, really in this book there's just that one moment like towards the end where they're walking and Granny just sort of slips and nearly falls over and she's not doing it for any reason. It, it's a yeah. sign that she's starting to feel not as all powerful yeah. and made of iron as she used to be. But this book is too early. Like this book is like two. It's a year or two before his diagnosis. I think you know he'd had he'd had some health scares and stuff, but I think. I mean, I, I think he was just thinking about this stuff. Like, he's always been interested in death and yeah. and people's lives ending and why should that be a scary thing? So, I think it's kind of an, an evolution of that thought. So, I, I think maybe the later ones. And also, I mean, probably just from a very pragmatic perspective, like, he's obviously trying to start this offshoot series mm. with the Tiffany books. And you can't just keep writing Granny and Nanny and Magrat books you have to kind of make space. So I think Granny's, <laughs> the wane of Granny Weatherwax. Um, <laughs> yes. Like I think that's almost sort of inevitable yeah. um, in some ways. Like you can't just keep, like she's an old lady, she and Nanny both, they're old ladies when you meet them at the start of the Discworld books. Mm. Um, but also I wonder how much of Granny's cleverness, I suppose, or whatever might have been part of how Terry thought of himself and like whether that's an exploration of what it is like to mm. just get older. Yeah. Because it doesn't even have to be diminishment of your mental capacity or anything like that, just ageing. Just mm. ageing sucks. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um. So, yeah, I don't know. 
Well, the next question comes from Grace Ordnung via email. So the first question is for Liz specifically due to her medical background. There's the part of the book where Tiffany is arguing with Granny about telling the truth as opposed to telling stories to get people to do something. So telling them about bacteria versus goblins in their drinking water. My question is, are there other examples in history where the folklore got the right message across even if the information was different slash wrong? Like, that is a great question. Mm. I can't think of specific examples where people deliberately told people in the medical sense something was different to get them to do something, but there are previous medical things that were in place based on wrong information. Mm. So I'm not sure if it's about the telling light. There's one that I'm certainly going to look into and ask around about because I would love to know it, but there was like the whole thing about like drilling holes in people's head to let like the demons out, etc. Mm. which... But I think that's because they genuinely believe that, not because that was just the story they told to relieve tension or blood mm. build up around the brain. But yeah, it's not quite the same thing. But I, one of my favorite stories in medicine is when Jon Snow, yes, that was his actual name, <laughs> figured out that cholera was coming from the communal drinking water supply. Mm. I think he was in somewhere in England, probably London. And people wouldn't believe him because like, people did not believe about the tiny things in water. So he just went around and just took all the handles off pumps so people couldn't get water and thus couldn't get cholera. <laughs> A genius. I mean, lateral <laughs> thinking yeah. at its finest. Because people wouldn't believe him. So he was like, well, I guess I'll have to find the other way to make it work. So it's not exactly the same, but it's, um, yeah. But there's a great follow-up question from Grace as well. Um, what story would Granny tell a village in order to get them to social distance slash wear a mask or get a vaccine? Oh, we need we need this story now. Yeah, I feel like the mask one would be something about uh, yeah, not letting demons see your face. Yeah, not letting like not being recognised in some way. Yeah, maybe. Oh, don't let them get in in your nose or your mouth, or they'll like climb into your tummy and do something. Like oh yeah, 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 yeah. There's invisible, yeah, invisible the goblins. Goblins, yeah. <laughs> I feel like goblins are just a good catch-all for things. I mean, not actual Discworld or or even D and D goblins or but demons. It, like they're just take a good pick. word. Yeah, yeah. Like a vaccine is like oh, it will make your sweat smell different, so therefore it will keep the goblins away. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. very good. Yeah, I like that. I mean, if, if you the way we talk about vaccines, because we we still the simplest way to explain them is not really quite how they work now. But it, you know, yeah. the kind of sympathetic magic version of it, which is if you take a little bit of this thing, it will protect you from the bad full version of the thing, which is not yeah. entirely accurate about how it works. But it's sort of it makes sense. I think that's yeah. kind of like I mean, in Pratchett terms, it's a lighter children, you know, because it's sort of how vaccines started out. Yeah. But it's not quite why they work, but it's it's an, close enough to the truth that, yeah. Or I think in philosophy it's Wittgenstein's ladder. So it's oh. like you need the first step of a ladder. Mm. And whether or not it is true or accurate or not or whatever, once you've climbed to the next rungs of the ladder, you can discard the lower ones kind of thing. But you just need to be able to get on the ladder in the first place. I'm sure that's probably the worst <laughs> and possibly inaccurate summation of Wittgenstein's ladder that has ever been immortalized. And yet it's but convinced me, you get, Shelley. Yeah, so yeah. I, see? It's I've, I'm Lies on the first children. rung now. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, similar concept. Broadly, it's a pedagogical tool. You need to meet people where they are, Yeah. not where you think they should be. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Oh, 
you're saying really smart things right now, but I've, I've just been like, how would granny get people to social distance? And I'm like, all right, I've got it. Your ancestral ghosts have detected that something bad is going to happen sometime in the next few months, and they don't know what. So they've all gathered around you. So you've got, you got, you're literally surrounded by the ghosts of your ancestors. And if you get too close, if you get within a meter and a half of someone else, you're going to squish your ancestral ghosts, and they're going to be mad. And it's rude. <laughs> like, do you want to do that to great grandmother? That's that's not cool. Yeah, yeah give so, them yeah. some space. Yeah, I love come it. Back to protect you. <laughs> And it's it's pretty uncool to, to not respect your family in that way. So, yeah. Okay. And All then right. they'll just haunt you for the rest of your days. Yeah, but not in a nice, protective no. way. Yeah, no. they'll make your life hell. No. Yeah. We've got a comment from Steve Lave, which is, I find myself wondering if a modern-day Mr. Weevil might like the sound of a Land Rover hearse, which is an excellent <laughs> Prince Philip reference for people who haven't seen that Prince Philip actually designed his own hearse for his funeral and it was a converted land rover wow. so if you haven't seen well, i guess we'll put that okay. in the show notes yeah it's sure. amazing okay and then this from sven via discord what would your research area be as a research witch would it be better collapsible brooms for example Ooh. Oh. i mean i, I think mm. so this is kind of adjacent to my skill set now, like close-ish. But I feel as though, like, if you think back to Rincewind kind of books and how spells are vocalised or pronounced or written down, I think something around, like, a research which specialization in yeah getting the right pronunciations or the right spellings or like standardization of spells so that everyone can kind of pronounce them correctly Mm. and it makes me think weirdly so one of my favorite movies in the entire world is the mummy oh my god good company here um yes so it makes me think of evie the librarian the mummy um sort of being able to read and pronounce all of these incantations from hieroglyphics and hieratics so i feel like something around that kind of area would be my chosen specialization yeah that's cool um i think i would i would want to get in on the on broomsticks, but I don't. I don't think I would do collapsible brooms. You do. You do. You ride a bike. You are a cyclist, yeah. so I can see that. I would want to look into ways of of making them more reliable, but also how you know how do you carry things? Like how do you make them more practical? Because mm. like they when when I like the fact that when they when Tiffany's going to Miss Level's cottage, they tie a rope onto her um like suitcase. Yeah, they like lash lash it together. But you don't to get the impression seat. that the suitcase is floating; it's just being dragged behind by the velocity of travel. So I feel like, how can you how can you fix a basket of some that sort was or not, panniers? That was not how I imagined it at all. Oh no, really? I had imagined it like lashed to the actual broomstick, like oh. a crossbar seat. Although I enjoy your whole little like motorcycle and sidecar <laughs> flapping along behind, kind of. Visual, but not how I had I mean, your imagined way, it at all. Your but... way makes much more sense. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I I feel like yeah, like you know, get, make a make a sidecar. Yeah, broom. does not invalidate your idea at all. Yeah, like a three seater, a tandem broom <laughs> for for you know when the three witches need to work together. Mm. Um, and I guess I would work on improving B mail for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> um. 
Now, as well as some great questions, and uh, we loved all those questions. Thank you so much for sending them in. We've got some great comments this month about the book on Twitter and in a few other places. Uh, a lot of people were talking about the way that Pratchett writes Tiffany and how it represents his writing both of, of women and, and girls, but also about relationships between children and parents, um, but also about the age range. So uh, this is something that we heard from Rachel on Twitter. We heard from Steve on Twitter. But one of the things that Steve in particular said about this is that he feels like, you know, when, when you're writing for younger readers, he calls it one of the tenets of writing, and I think this is broadly true, that you generally write your protagonist a bit older than your audience. And he thinks that works really well in The We Free Men when Tiffany's nine and the story's not too complicated because the, you know, readers will be a little bit younger than that. But he feels like this story is a lot more complicated and subtle and Tiffany's only 11. So if you're 11 or younger reading this, he wonders whether people reading it will really get it if they're that age or whether this is more of a YA book. And I thought that was really kind of an interesting point. What, what do you, because hmm. I, I feel like, I mean, look, I, I'm a bit biased. I, I think that reading age is a, such a subjective thing. And as someone yeah. who was reading well above the age they should have been reading when he was young and didn't really get it, but still enjoyed it. I kind of like that that there's more in it than you're going to get the first time you read it when yeah. you're Tiffany's age. The other thing I wanted to say about this is, I again, I feel like if we take into account the kind of culture and society that they're painting for Tiffany and the kind of historical, pseudo-historical period in which it's happening, you know, she is, in her life experience, ahead of where someone now would be at 11. Mm. Mm. Like, she's doing things that probably are more like a young teenager would do in terms of going away from home by yourself to get yeah. a job, to be trained. So it is more like a YA book. Yeah. Like, and I think someone reading even it. Even if her chronological age is 11. I didn't even defeat The Queen of the Fairies till I was 17. There so. you go. Late bloomer. Yeah. I'm still working on it. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I think that's fair enough. Um, the other thing that, that Steve did bring up too is that he felt like this was a much more nuanced and well-drawn portrait of a young person. And he, he thinks of Tiffany as a person rather than a character and wondered if she's inspired by Rihanna Pratchett. And this is an interesting question because we know that Esk from Equal Rights was very definitely inspired by Rihanna. Oh, really? Um, she's she's on Aww. record saying that, and I think Terry dedicated that book to her. So I think that's pretty clear. But I don't know about Tiffany. I mean, it's it's hard to say that you know when you only have one daughter and you write a book about a young girl growing oh, up. Oh God, yeah. How how could she not be some sort of influence? But I don't think she's directly related. And when you look at the difference between the two characters, they've got some things in common. They're both quite headstrong. They know what they want, um, and they don't like being told what to do. And they're quite independent. But, you know, when, when this was written... But I feel like that's true of almost all of Terry's female characters. Maybe that's a chicken and egg issue. Like, is that reflecting Rihanna and possibly other women in mm. Terry's life? Yeah. Or is it just that he thinks men are more likely to be sad drips like Mort? <laughs> um, I mean, he's not wrong. <laughs> I mean, he's not wrong. Mort. Wentworth um, and Mort. Oh. But, um... Yeah, like, yeah, certainly. I feel as though across ages and kind of characters, that's a pretty common trait in Terry's female characters anyway. Yeah. But I, I would agree with the, the last thing that, that Steve said about this, which is that he feels the Johnny books were written from outside, but the Tiffany books are written from B-side, and it makes a big difference. And I, I think mm. however much Rihanna is a direct influence or inspiration for Tiffany, which I think is debatable, 
particularly because she was 28 when the first ones were being written. But I think he's right about how they feel. Yeah. Like they're written by a dad or someone who has a loving relationship who has watched a girl grow up. Yeah. Yeah, and it's hard. Which, when I phrase it that way, I'm trying to be inclusive. It sounded slightly creepy, but you know what I mean. Yeah. But look, I think that's what we've got time for this month, but it's been a great discussion. Sally, thank you so much for being a guest on the podcast. And it has your been my absolute pleasure. Uh, it- a pleasure and a delight. <laughs> Well, look, you know, it's lovely It's lovely to have you here. And if pe- people want to hear more of your opinions about things, and why wouldn't they? Why would I they mean, not? look. <laughs> where, where could they go to find you? Best option, I would say, is Twitter, at Salactica Actual. We'll put that in the show notes. We will. What a great pun. Otherwise, I'm happy to pop some little uh, bits and bobs of my own into the show notes. We won't list them here, but... Tweet at me. I'm hilarious on Twitter. I'm it's funnier true. on Twitter than in real life. So I don't know. Up. There's been some pretty amazing puns this episode. Yeah. So oh, you happened. should see my Twitter. <laughs> all right. <laughs> I will. Uh, oh, no. Can we survive it? We'd also like to thank all of our listeners, all of our supporters and subscribers. We've had a couple of new ones this last month. So, thank- hello. Thank you so much for listening. We've also just recently done a mail out. So, hopefully, all of you who are subscribed at the $10 level have got some nice goodies in the mail i won't say anymore i won't say anymore i'll let it be a surprise if you haven't received them uh but thank you all of you thank you everybody who listens and who tells their friends about the show it all helps if you want to support the podcast and you you don't want to spend money on us you can review us you can give us a rating on whatever podcast directory you like thank you to the three or four people who did that in april on podchaser not only has that helped a few people find us through that platform but also uh there was a bit of a funding drive going on there and that's translated into a small amount of money being donated to meals on wheels in the u.s so thank you so much for doing that we appreciate it thank you we will be back of course next month and we're going to travel back in time liz we made a promise Mm, a long time ago that uh, when we read The Colour of Magic mm. on its 35th anniversary, that we would read its direct sequel, The Light Fantastic, on its 35th anniversary. And guess what, Liz? It's nearly time. Yay. I mean, I enjoyed The Colour of Magic way more than I thought I was going to. So I actually am, despite my groans, very much looking forward to The Light Fantastic because I think I'd remembered it being a lot more of a drudge than it actually is. Yeah. So... Yeah. And it's quite short compared to some of his later ones that we've been reading. So I think that's going to be a nice break from, you know, the 450 page tomes that are in the bit of the Discworld that we're currently up to. Um, And this also means we're going to have read every Discworld book up to a certain point, Mm. um, which is exciting. And we've still got some gaps because we do skip forward and back a bit to space some of the series out. Maybe you've got questions about that. You can ask us. Um, But you can also ask us questions about The Light Fantastic for our next episode. You can send those into us via social media or email. Use the hashtag Pratchat44 for your light, fantastic questions um, or send an email to chat at pratchatpodcast.com. So thanks, thanks once again so much for listening. And please, until we're back next month, remember, leave something out for your undergeist to clean up. You've been listening to Pratchat, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux, Ben McKenzie, that's me, and guest Sally Evans. 
Pratchett is produced and edited by me, with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pratchett Podcast, and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via PratchettPodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchett43. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrors. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.